Hey everyone, Trace here. Before we get to the episode, I wanted to mention that my living situation temporarily changed this week, and I had to record in a cavernous room with hardwood floors. Because of that, you may notice a slight echo effect on my audio. Never fear though, because I'll be back to normal next week. And now, back to the show. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. to horror queers we're talking drinking partying running people over getting away with murder we're also talking the talent portion of the croaker queen pageant and finally we're talking about jennifer love hewitt's boobalicious wardrobe and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're also talking what is possibly the greatest chase scene in any movie horror or otherwise yeah, please note that I literally saved that for you because I knew that you would have nothing else to contribute. I, to I literally, I was like, oh my God, please don't let him do that goddamn chase scene because I have nothing else to say. <laughs> yeah, we are we are in sync. I, I gave that to you. We are talking 1997's Jim Gillespie's I Know What You Did Last Summer, everybody. And I could not be happier because it is one of my favorite movies of all time. And really, what better film could we be celebrating the July 4th weekend with than this little honey of a gem? <laughs> too true. I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's the thing about recording two to three weeks in advance is that you forget that the holidays that are coming up and the special occasions. And yes, everyone, we have got you ready for 4th of July and it's going to be fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. And just as a sidebar, happy Canada Day, Canadians, because this is literally dropping on Canada Day. July 1st is Canada Day? Yes, sweetie. Y'all really? Wait, was it Canada Day before 4th of July was a thing? Oh, fuck if I know. <laughs> okay. I mean, probably. It's literally the birth of our country. Well, mm, you know, barring the fact that it's like a colonial state that we stole from indigenous people and all that stuff. <laughs> That's super fair. Um, okay, well, um, everyone, so this is obviously a very important episode for us, and we wanted to make sure that we had someone to join us to make sure we didn't get too gaga over it. Um, ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, please welcome back to the podcast uh, someone who was on a very famous episode on The X-Files, I Want to Believe, which we're giving him a redo because I really fucked that one up. Uh, <laughs> please welcome back my dear friend and husband, Ari Drew. Yay! Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me back again. Um, and to be fair, I didn't think that last episode was a, such a fuck up. It's more so for me that it was so serious. And this time I really wanted to be able to talk about something super fun. And Absolutely. I'm not drinking tonight. So yay. But I am. So we'll see what happens. Ooh, I can't wait to see what happens when Ari gets uh, all loose-lipped. and Loosey-goosey. I hold yes. my liquor much better. So He does. Just, spoiler alert. <laughs> he, he he can drink like five, ten shots and be like totally fine. All right. That's an exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> cut it out. Cut it out. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I mean, Ari. So what, what, do you like this movie? I love this movie. So I was actually really, really excited to see this on the list of episodes that I could guest on. Um, I have a, this movie has a really, really special place in my heart. And for me, it was between this and the Suspiria remake, which is also extremely heavy. So I figured yeah. it might be better for me to, to, to chime in on something more fun and have a little fun while I'm doing it. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I was really happy when you said that you wanted to come back and do this one because I thought, you know what, let's just have a blast with it. I mean, you know, it's 4th of July, we got to get partying and having fun. And what better way to do it than by watching this fucking movie? Right. And also going to Rio because folks, if you are joining us on the Patreon, we have literally also dropped an audio commentary on the atrociously bad sequel. So you can double bill them both. July 4th. <laughs> I, I mean, the fact that we're asking people to rewatch I Still Know You Did Last Summer, although, although I say that, and that movie does have its fans. This is true. All movies have their fans. Yeah, I actually really, um, I saw both of these in theaters, and we'll get into, I guess, my little history and attachment to this movie. But yeah, by all means. Yeah, yeah so I, I saw both of these films in theater, and I was um, pretty young. I think I was maybe in like fifth grade or sixth grade. So I saw them, con- obviously, they came out in consecutive years. So... I have a funny story about how I ended up getting to see this in theaters. Yeah, that age seemed a little young. Yeah, it was, of course. <laughs> I, I got into a lot of films that I really should probably not have been allowed to see a lot in my childhood. Mostly because I have I had very uh, loosely supervised days at home and hangouts with friends. And it was just a very different time back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I had a group of friends speaking to queerness a bit that these are, I didn't have a lot of friends when I was growing up. I was very awkward and effeminate and weird and too smart for, you know, my own good. But I started playing sports when I was basketball, particularly when I was in fourth grade and I found out that I was kind of good at it. So I ended up making friends with a lot of these guys who are kind of like sporty dudes and they ended up being Um, my really good group of friends for a few years um, in the town where I lived. So I'm kind maybe Trace has alluded to this or I'm kind of a pill when it comes to um, planning and like organizing things and just wanting to make sure things go the right way and that they're perfect and fun and everyone has a great time. It's like that dance. Have you seen that dance moms meme where it's like the crazy lady and she's like, we're all going to have fun and we're going to something like that. She's like yelling <laughs> yeah. at these children. Like that was force me. mandated fun. Yes. So that was definitely me um, from a very young age all the time. <laughs> I'm imagining like a baby Ari. Like, no, guys, we're seriously going to have fun. I've got an entire itinerary and it's going to be great. You jest, but that's probably what it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was more of an asshole, I could think. I was probably oh, no. a little more aggressive and like would bully people, bully my friends into like doing what I wanted to do. I was like that kind of kid for a long time. Sounds amazing. Um, yeah. So it was my my closest friend in the group. His name is David. Um, it was his birthday. I think it was like his 11th or 12th birthday. And these kids were also kind of, they're kind of bad kids. Like some of them would like smoke, like secretly. <gasps> I mean, and, like, this is Lubbock, Texas. We're talking It's about. actually outside of Lubbock. I didn't, I didn't live in oh, Lubbock, right. Texas at this point. So I lived in actually, it's a really small town of like 2000 people. Okay. Um, where this was, but Lubbock was our next biggest city, which if you don't, know anything about texas you don't really need to know that much except lubbock is but buddy holly lived there he was a famous musician and Hmm. natalie mains from the dixie chicks and it's a college town where um a pretty famous uh university is okay texas tech university so that's where we went for fun and so mostly what we do on weekends is travel there it's like a 30 minute drive and go to the movies or go to the mall or both so for birthdays, that's mostly what we would do. We would go to like the mall and walk around for three hours and then go to the movies and then go eat or something. Yes. The nineties mall culture, of course. Yeah. Oh, it was oh it was wonderful. <laughs> I had so many, so many good hangs at the mall. But this around this time, probably like the year well, I started really, really getting I've always loved horror. I kind of talked about this 
in multiple spaces, but um, I was really kind of rejuvenated by Scream and the new, you know, whole teen mm-hmm. slasher subgenre that was making a return at the time. And so I remember watching the trailer for this particular movie. I think it was the VHS of Anaconda. Oh, that that, that was me. It was <laughs> yeah. the v, the VHS of Anaconda had it was it was like this. It was the Fifth Element. It was Starship Troopers. Um, oh, oh wow. and, th- and this this Patrick Stewart Vincent Kartheiser movie called Masterminds. Like yeah. those were the trailers on that VHS. Uh, they can't all be gems, but uh, yeah, most of those sound <laughs> awesome. Yeah, and actually, I think the trailer aired during the f- the first episode of season two of Buffy, which I was also watching live at the time. Mm. That would 100% um, make sense. Yeah. yeah, so I was, like, super stoked. I didn't know anything about that. I was actually a really big Lois Duncan fan, who's the author of the novel. We'll get um, to that. We'll get um, to that. <laughs> yeah, so I so I knew the, t- the title was familiar, so I was just really excited. And so I had a plan that, that I was going to convince all my friends that we needed to see this for my friend David's birthday. And it was really probably, like, the most manipulative thing that, like, an 11-year-old could have done. The way I did it, I don't even know, I don't even know, but, like, it was, like, a week of, like, oh, yeah, like, this looks really good. Oh, yeah, look at this poster that girls' boobs are out. Like, oh, you know, it's, like, trying my best to convince all my little straight jock, you know, friends why they should go see the slasher movie that I just really wanted to see, even though it was my birthday. (laughs) My birthday was literally, like, two weeks prior to this, mind you. So I'd already had my birthday. (laughs) You wanted a Uh, second birthday of Jennifer Love, huge tits, yeah. Absolutely. And pretty much I, like, bullied all my friends into agreeing to go see this movie and my friend's mom into buying us tickets and then leaving. (laughs) So we did that for his birthday that year, and it was absolutely my idea. They Luckily, they loved it. Like, we had a lot of fun. Um, but literally, like, I totally to- took over this kid's birthday for my own <laughs> pleasure. Railroaded somebody else's yeah. birthday. And nice. the fucked up thing is that I did it again the next year. For the sequel? <laughs> for the sequel. <laughs> no. And we all saw it together. Yeah. It was actually, like, it became, like, a, a total, I say accidental. It was very calculated. But it was our little ritual for a couple of years. And we had a lot, and then we actually did watch this um on vhs and stuff before it, it's we had a lot of fun times watching i would make my friends watch a lot of these like late 90s slashers and um at the time when i still lived in that town so mm-hmm. i have i just remember like being able to see this movie when i was not of the age to be able to see it otherwise because my friend's mom didn't give a shit what we did and bought us all tickets and then just peaced out um, <sighs> and then just like there are so many just so many moments where i just remember being genuine like jump scares and this was actually one of the i told trace this yesterday but this was maybe the second time i remember being really affected by a jump scare really? which jump okay. scare was it it's actually the ending the, which, oh. is, which now but again like as a kid i was like that was the scariest ending i remember leaving and i was like that ending is better than scream <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, Scream baby, just already <laughs> know. I know. I was such an idiot. <laughs> Scream just ends, though, with the, the camera panning up and Gail Weathers doing her thing. Like, there's no jump scare at the end of Scream because it's classy. Yeah, it's not stupid. This <laughs> ending is so stupid. But, like, in retrospect, I remember thinking, like, oh, that jump scare got me when I was a kid. Which is yeah. why, like, rewatching it, I felt really, like, it feel like, so much of this actually feels more 80s slasher to me. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think we'll definitely see, like, the, when we discuss the kind of production, just the style of this film, uh-huh. because I, I think people don't give enough credit to this film's style, particularly, and, and that 80s blueprint is kind of all over this film. Well, actually, I want to say one thing, too, and we will, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but I, because I had such really good, ex- like, memories of this movie, and I, all my friends I knew at the time, all the people that I, you know, grew up with who saw this movie either on 
um, when it was out on VHS or, or what have you. We all loved it. It was like one of the best horror movies that we knew. And like, we all like loved Scream and Scream 2 and Faculty and Urban Legend and all that stuff, which again, I did, I did railroad some other events <laughs> to see <laughs> some of those movies too. As you do. As yeah. You do. But I didn't know that people, that there were lots of people who did not like this movie, like who, who do not regard this movie as highly as I do, um, mm. as highly as we clearly do. Yeah, we all love it. Yeah. And I, and so I was kind of thinking like, oh God, I hope. Someone out there, maybe it would make uh, more sense to have one of the, like the dissenters as the guests for this. But mm. sorry, y'all, like we're gonna yeah, no. we're gonna love all of this gonna, movie. <laughs> just after last week, when the three, when me, Joe, and Valeska were like, "Oh, the craft isn't really that great," and now we're coming back with, but I still, I know you did last summer. Also, fuck y'all, the craft is wonderful, and I love it. <laughs> I mean, by this point, you'll have heard it, but I feel like we treated the craft fairly. No, I mean we, we acknowledge we, we that there are good fair. parts and other parts that maybe struggle. I, I fully agree with that. Um, I'll get so actually, Joe. What is your connection with this movie? I'll go last. So I have a very like similar but simpler story, which is just I had been delayed on seeing Scream, but obviously I saw the cultural impact that it made, and it kind of I think it also fed me in terms of saying like a horror can be good again, which is I recognize now after having done the podcast for like a year and a half is really unfair to the films of the 90s. Mm -hmm. But the public perception was that horror was shit. And now all of a sudden it was fun and good again. And I do think that that 80s nostalgia for slasher films was part of what fed the success of this film in particular. So, uh, you know, it's really straddling the divide and I'm not going to spend too much time on that, but I remember seeing the trailers. I liked all of the people in this movie. This cast is hot as fuck. So <laughs> mm -hmm. I, you know, like prepubescent me was looking at this and the loins were tingling. So I was like, yeah, obviously I'm going to go see this movie. And I remember thinking that it was really, really well executed. And I think I was even more enamored with the cast afterwards. Is that the story? Is that the end of it? There's no story. I just want to see it and like it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I apologize for my very long-winded story. No, I mean, you're the guest. You're allowed to bring that nostalgic history because you haven't been talking endlessly about all these other bullshit movies for like the last year. I think our listeners are probably like, oh my god, a fresh voice. I love it. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is why we bring guests on because... <laughs> There's only so many times Trace can talk about how his mom wouldn't let him watch horror movies as a kid. <laughs> Speaking of, so I was eight when this movie came out. <laughs> I um, I watched the trailer on repeat on the Anaconda VHS because Anaconda came out in uh, April of 97. So when the VHS came out, you know, like four months later, it was like, oh, yeah, let's market the fuck out of I Know You Did Last Summer. Makes sense. The trailer, of course, featured that Kula Shaker song, Hush, oh, which is so good. I think it's a cover, actually, of a Deep Purple song. but It is. Okay, but I I loved it, and of course I couldn't watch it. So of course. I just watched the trailer a lot because I also watched Anaconda like every day for a lot of my childhood. And when it finally was going to premiere on, I want to say TBS, maybe TNT. I could be wrong. Don't at me if I'm wrong. I did that thing where like so I I was probably like 11 when it went on TNT or TBS, and I got I recorded it. But I did that thing where I um I would stop the v the recording like during commercials, so like oh, I could no. I could have the full movie to watch with no commercial breaks. Right, but you missed something, didn't you? I, well, I mean, I missed all the fucks in the movie. Um, I, oh, okay. I will say that I had I also wore out this VHS copy because I watched it so many times. And so watching this movie last night, I was like, oh, that was a commercial break. Oh, that was a commercial break. Oh, mm. commercial break. But um, the first time I actually did like, I watched it was with a friend. I mean, I brought a VHS, a blank VHS over to his house. And I was like, hey, I want to watch this movie. And he left halfway through the movie. And I was still, you know, trying to I mean, like, I, I you know, I was gay at the time. So I was still kind of like trying to like 
push my masculinity up. And I remember when Helen dies, I ran, he, he was in another room and I ran into his room where his, he was with his mom. They were watching like baseball or something. Ugh, and, I, <laughs> and I ran in and I was like, Helen, the hot girl died. Helen, the hot girl died because I didn't, I didn't watch Buffy. So I, I didn't know who Sarah Michelle Gellar was at the time. Right. You were just like, oh, she's the beauty pageant one. Yep, and that, that that's it. But I, 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 it was on this VHS, I had this, and I had Deep Blue Sea, and I had Psycho. All queued up, taped, commercials cut out, and everything. The and remake? I, no, no, the original. Oh. Um, oh, that's a pretty good VHS. Uh, it's awesome and real fun. <laughs> that's actually a really sweet story. I don't think I ever knew that. <laughs> and we, we have been um, married for three years. Three, yeah, three, three years. Year, but we've been together for almost We've been together years. for, yeah, for almost 10 years. And so anytime I get to hear a story that I haven't heard before, it's like, I feel like maybe some of the listeners feel the same, that it's like very refreshing because I've heard the same stories for many, many years now. Mm-hmm. Well, particularly with a film like this, right? Where you probably also watched this together numerous times. Mm-hmm. We actually, we just showed it to a friend, I mean, a year ago, we did a 90s movie marathon and we showed him this because he'd never seen this. He'd never seen wow. Urban Legend. He hated this movie. Oh, yeah. no. Um, <laughs> well, he couldn't get over the, the fact that the kids were terrible because of the, 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 the uh, what's it called? The, um. The ca- the catalyst, the, oh, I the, see. Mm. the onset in- the inc- incident. I don't know, Le- mm. leaving a man for dead. Like he could not get over that to the point where like and he's like they're shitty, they're shitty people for doing this, and he like was just stuck on that. Yeah, full of oh, white privilege, God. which is true. Yeah, and you're totally like true. yes, but also let me show you eight million other movies where the kids are absolute assholes like <laughs> and cannot see april fool's day well but i i think though like even in those movies there's at least one like, your final girl is typically someone that you're like oh I, I she's i like her i relate to her whereas this it was like oh even though julie feels guilty about it for a whole year like she, she still, still went along with it. yeah she still went along with it mm-hmm. yeah and also julie is the absolute worst oh she's <laughs> she's terrible but we, fuck yeah, you julie well, we can go in on that in a second i'm sure <laughs> Well, no. Okay, so, so then before we like before we like dive into your plot, I mean, I'll go through some brief production history because I mean, th- there's actually I learned something new about this film today, so that, that's really good. Um, I had always read that Kevin Williamson wrote this script before Scream, and he only got it made after Scream because like oh like they were like oh like we see what you did with Scream, let's look at your other screenplays, and this is what he had. Right. Not the case. He had written Killing Mrs. Tingle beforehand, um, <laughs> which eventually came, became Teaching Mrs. Tingle post-Columbine. Right. But no, he, he so he was actually um, approached. So Mandalay, who's one of the, the, the producers on this film, um, they were in the bidding war for Scream. And they lost to the Weinsteins uh, for Dimension Films. So basically, producer Eric Feig pitched the idea of a screen adaptation of Lois Duncan's novel, I Know You Did Last Summer, to Mandalay. They were like, well, we really want Williamson because we lost out on Scream, so let's go. And they pitched it to him, and he was like, fuck yeah, I want more work. And that's how this came about. Right. And he was also like, do I have to adapt this book, or can I just keep the title and the basic plot premise? And they were like, have at it. (laughs) I mean, most of the the (laughs) names are the same even, too, except for Helen's last name. Yeah, but I mean, this is a very different It's a very plot. different story. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so yeah, so basically, they, obviously, because Scream was so popular, they were like, oh, we need to, like, you know, make this more slashery. But as opposed to wanting to do it really meta, 
he wanted to make it more akin to an 80s slasher film. And then his father was a commercial fisherman, so that's why he got the idea for The Fisherman is the Killer, um, when also adapting it as a retelling of the Hook urban le- the Hook Man urban legend. And thank God for that, because honestly, I just, you know, I haven't seen enough men in a slicker by the end of this movie. I need like 50 guys in slickers. <laughs> Random factoid, though, uh, I saw today Julie never sees Ben Willis in The Fisherman outfit, in the slicker. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> this movie is filled with like these people didn't do this and you're just like oh my god who is keeping track of wait this you shit? mean that she oh that she never sees him in the slicker she never sees the fisherman yeah, yeah. yeah. oh and so which is like you're billy blue you're, you're the fisherman it's like okay but you haven't seen him as the fisherman but yet. i feel like they've talked about him <laughs> they, they have they that, okay so this is another thing that i think is before you get back yeah. to that that i actually it came up whenever we were re-watching this and he and he even mentioned something that you said, like it, so. Like there's a again, there, this is a movie where it's easy to like kind of poke holes in a lot of oh, yeah. elements yeah, of the yeah. plot. But I remember growing up and watching this and thinking about those things and creating explanations in like basically quelling my own cognitive dissonance <laughs> because I was like that doesn't make sense. And then I think like oh he's just really fast and he had a truck and he popped open mm-hmm. the trunk and took the body out and took the crabs out really quickly. Well, things like that that I was just like making up excuses so that way like if friends saw it and they were like this is stupid this wouldn't happen i could like say well actually this thing i made up is probably what happened let me tell you why it's not (laughs) as you rightfully pointed out last night joe though the one good thing the sequel gave us is a son to the fisherman so as you said it's entirely possible that will benson is helping Mm -hmm. him this entire time spoiler alert if you have never seen the second one (laughs) I mean, it's not a spoiler alert. It's like the dumbest plot twist. (laughs) I think it's terrible. I think it's one of the most famous plot twists from the 90s. But to be fair, when I was very young and I saw that second one in theaters. Oh, no. Did you make up excuses for it? No, I was like, oh, my God, of course. Like, I, (laughs) I thought it was the most clever thing in the world. Um, uh, but no, I think we'll have a lot to say about the plot holes too, and also because I remember seeing this for the first time, and when the, when, when it's revealed like that it's Ben Willis, I remember being like again eleven year old Trace, like who who right. it, it it sounds so convoluted at first, but honestly, it makes a lot of sense. But I think some people still have issues with who the killer is, and that it's not like someone we already knew ahead of time. I think it's also. Because we spend, like, so much of this movie name-dropping David Egan, who is a character who, you know, shows up literally in the first two minutes of this movie and then is never seen again. And in a picture later in the yearbook. Yeah. (laughs) Don't forget the yearbook, Joe. Oh, how could I forget the fucking yearbook? (laughs) Elsa's class of 92. Oh, yes. So, I mean, and with casting, there's not much. I, Jennifer Love Hewitt did audition for the role of Helen, and I think she actually got the role, but then she was like, oh, I want to be Julie. She claims in the, an interview that they did for the Blu-ray in 08 that she did not do that because she wanted to be the lead, but she thought that Julie was just the more interesting and likable character, and she also wanted to survive to the end. Oh, dear. Oh. <laughs> that, that just makes me sad in the pants, because, like, that is wrong on both counts. It is, but honestly, though, aren't we glad that Sarah Michelle Gellar's Helen anyway? Absolutely. Oh, yes. I mean, this is... Listen, folks, let's be real right off the top here. Well, like 25 minutes in. The reason that people like this movie is not because of Julie, and it's probably not because of Ray. This is 100% Helen Stan. 
army <laughs> with a touch of Ryan Philippe's abs when he gets out of the shower. Oh I, my god, yes. I do have a really good quote from the director, Jim Gillespie. He So he chose Freddie Prinze Jr. for the role of Ray because he felt that Prince himself had a, a quote-unquote everyman quality, much like the character. And I'm like, oh, so you mean he was boring as fuck? Either that or that Scottish director is really misguided about how beautiful average people are. <laughs> And then, yeah, before we get into release and reception, I'll just say, I mean, yeah, it is a Scottish director, Jim Gillespie. He had been hired to direct the film after being suggested by Kevin Williamson um, after he saw his short film Joyride, which is included on the Blu-ray, but I didn't watch because I yeah. just didn't want to. Fair enough. Um, he doesn't seem to like horror movies that much. When he signed on for this film, I'm sure it was, oh, cool, first directing gig. But he intentionally set out, and we'll talk about this more when the kills come up, to make a bloodless slasher film. I think he respects the genre, but I think he also considers himself a bit of a classy dude. So yeah. he wanted to make a adult slasher film. The way he speaks about the film, he really leans into like the nuance and the yes. kind of deeper stuff going on, which I even did mention last night. Like there's a couple of scenes whenever we were watching them. And it's always like, again, like you look at some of these movies with nostalgia blinders years later and you're like, oh, of course, like when I was younger, maybe I thought that this was like really like clever or really super well done. But this is a movie. And so I kind of ex I expect that to happen when I rewatch uh, movies that I really loved as a kid. Mm -hmm. This is a movie that like last night, whenever I had been kind of paying more attention to some of the scenes that I've seen a million times at this point. That I was like, oh, like, he really hits these emotional beats, like, really well. Yeah, he does. Yes. Yeah. I, I, and that's, whenever people shit on this movie, I'm like, I, I honestly think it's one of the more mature slashers I've seen because so much time is spent with these characters. And mm -hmm. when you do have those really good emotional beats, they hit, and we'll get to it later. But yeah, so, I mean, they filmed this movie for 10 weeks from March of 97 through, you know, spring, early summer 97. They do test screenings. They do reshoots to add more kills to it. And so, yeah, basically this movie comes out October 17th, 1997, released by Sony Pictures or Columbia, because honestly, I think that that logo I associate with this movie, Anaconda, the most. Ooh, you know what? Maybe the Charlie's Angels movie, too. Oh, a man of such varied taste. Of course. I, I have the best of taste. Uh, we're looking at a runtime of 101 minutes and a budget of $17 million, which... I, it's, I mean, for a slasher movie, I mean, it has to be because of Scream. You know, after Scream, they were like, whatever, just throw all the money at it. Um, it it's surprising. Yeah, I mean, I think people maybe realize that they got lucky with Scream and that they should probably invest a little bit. Like, I don't think anyone expected anything of Scream. I think people expected quite a lot of I Know What You Did Last Summer. I don't know that. I think if they did, it was because of the post-Scream craze. 100%. Like, clearly, yeah. like, the desire for this. It definitely is was not because of the cast. Because I think the only no. person who was really well-known... Jennifer Love Hewitt. Was Jennifer Love yeah. Hewitt, and even that she was like a TV person. Well, I didn't even realize this was Freddie Prinze Jr.'s like third film role, and his last two roles were like bit roles in movies. So I was quite shocked. Well, and this by was that. when this was Ryan Phillippe's like I think his one of his first major roles because he has yeah, like these indie yeah. roles and where he was like I remember one was like Little Boy Blue. Again, these are I was like really obsessed with him. Um, oh God, every was, yeah. every baby gay was 100%. lots of uh, <laughs> masturbation sessions with Ryan Phillippe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's just fact. 
Um, so in the weeks leading up to the film's release, there was marketing. Um, there was, of course, a lawsuit that, and if you don't know everyone, um, it did say on the posters for this movie from the creator of Scream. Bob Weinstein hated that uh, because he claimed that Wes Craven was the creator of Scream. So he filed a lawsuit against Columbia, arguing uh, that Craven was the creator. The week following I Know You Did Last Summer's theatrical release, a federal judge awarded Miramax an injunction requiring that Columbia remove the claim from their advertising campaign. So petty. <laughs> I My thing with that is, though... He, he was hurting for money, clearly. But, like, Williamson wrote it, and... I mean, it's a, it's a totally different debate, and we don't have to get into it, but it's like, yeah, Craven directed it and, like, you know, made the film, but, like, Williamson wrote Scream, so... He I mean, created Scream. He yeah, created, he created Scream. Scream. He did. It's a, it's a very weird thing, like, again, as you said, Ari, the, the nostalgic glasses are firmly on, and I think we all kind of look back on that time period as, oh, it was like an ultimate collaboration between screenwriter and director, but I actually think if you asked a lot of horror fans, they would credit craven as the the man steering the ship in terms of scream success that is so and i think that that's really unfortunate in a sense i love wes craven i respect all of his work except for my soul to take oh gosh it is called that (laughs) (laughs) i've been sorry i'm like halfway through my drink i have a very large daiquiri Uh oh he's gonna be slurring this is taking so long right like god can we just get into this (laughs) (laughs) okay okay Okay, uh, it opens in the number one slot with $15.8 million. It stays in the number one spot for three weeks in a row. Mm-hmm. That's not something that happens often with horror films, much less slasher films. You're welcome. I brought about seven people to this <laughs> opening weekend. They were all underage, but all of they provided that ticket money nonetheless. It goes on to make $72.6 million domestically and an additional $53 million overseas for a worldwide total of $125.6 million. And that's why we get a sequel greenlit like the next day. Right. But as we discussed in Scream 2, um, it's you can make a, a, a sequel that comes out less than a year later and it can turn out well. Or mm-hmm. you can do what I still know did. Which is suck and listen to us rag on it on that Patreon audio Patreon. commentary. <laughs> I am going to throw in some things that I do enjoy about that movie because I'm not going to get to be a part of that um, Absolutely. Conversation yeah. <laughs> that y'all are having. Um, critics, well, honestly, the Rotten Tomatoes score was a bit higher than I expected. We're looking at a 42% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.21 out of 10. Um, Letterbox score is 5.4 out of 10. Uh, but I do want to point out that this is uh, one of Roger Ebert's most hated films. He gave this a 1 out of 4, and he has a book, I think, of like, yeah, I hated, 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 hated this movie, and this is on it. How mm-hmm. is a Letterbox 5.4? I thought it was on a 5-point rating. Oh, I, I adjust it to match the Rotten Tomatoes, so it's actually like 2.7 out oh, of 5. Okay, well, fuck all of you Letterbox users <laughs> who need to watch this. <laughs> so yeah, it, it doubles out to a 5.4 out of 10. I think yeah. I gave this a 5 on Letterboxd. Oh, I did too. Yeah, we are, we're skewing the average up a little bit, I think, the three of us. I mean... I'm we should probably it. also note that one of the other critics, and I put critics in quotation marks who did not like it, was Lois Duncan, so she is not a fan of this okay, adaptation. but her, her quote was like, Bless her. I went to go see this movie, and these weren't my characters. All of a sudden, they started decapitating my characters. And I'm like, no one gets decapitated in this I want to be like, bitch, I'm sorry, but don't go see like other slashers, because this is one of like the least bloody, violent slashers well, out there. And we'll get, because we're about to start this plot summary, we'll get into that because I think that's a reason why people don't like it so much. Right. And to be fair to Lois Duncan, she was going through some real life tragedy. So she did. No, her yeah. da- her daughter, she wrote a whole book about it. I read that. I read that also when I was in elementary school <laughs> about her daughter um, getting kidnapped and murdered. Maybe she yeah. was murdered. It was in 89. It was called Who Killed My Daughter. Yeah. I, I was a big fan of her. Um, 
of her books too. So yeah, I was a little disappointed whenever I found out she didn't like this movie. Yeah. Uh, understandably so, but yeah. And I, I, sorry, before we go to that plot, I do want to point out that the reason, I mean, besides the slasher thing, like the reason that the book would not work as a film is because the twist in the book hinges on you not being able to see any of these characters. Yeah, so we're firmly back in Valentine territory. Yes. Yeah. And if you want to hear us talk about that, go and listen to that motherfucking audio commentary on Patreon. And if you want, read the book Valentine by Tom Savage, because it's fucking awesome. Or just listen to us talk about it and give us some money. Yeah, that's fine too. Um, But Joe, we've gone on, we've prattled on far enough. Please. Take us into the film. Okay. If that was your attempt at Scottish, I didn't like it, but I'm no, going it was to like a fan. No, it was a hoity-toity, like, British white woman. I don't know. You I know? don't know what that was. <laughs> I mean, you know Lois Duncan is not a hoity-toity British lady, right? It was Catherine Hepburn. That's who I was doing. Okay. Okay. Take us until I know what you did last summer. That's the Lovely. Right. Wait, that was that cherry pie doing Catherine Hepburn? <laughs> We don't speak of her. We don't speak I know. Of I was her. like, can you can you actually beep out we'll her name, out. please? <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> After a helicopter shot over the sea, we open on a drunk man sitting on the edge of a cliff as fireworks explode overhead. I'm going to cut in. Roger Ebert's review said, the first shot of this movie is the best one. You know that's not a good sign. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, this is a real... I mean, this, I think, is, hey, I'm a classy director. Look at this gorgeous aerial helicopter shot I'm going to open this movie with. I think it's a single take, too, right? Um, It is... I think it might be until we get to, to David. David Egan. And then, yeah. yeah, there's a couple of cuts. They apparently were experiencing some difficult weather. They were plagued by some troubling weather phenomenon. Like they had a lot of really hot days when it wasn't supposed to be warm because it was March and other fun things involving the boats on the water. All sorts of fun things about filmmaking. Can we talk about how Roger Ebert needs to just go watch the Discovery Channel? Like, I like... <laughs> If he really wants to see that. I, I That's so fucked up that he would say that because I think that there actually are some really wonderful shots yeah. in this film. Like even like in moments of action, like um, oh, 100%. running through the alley and stuff. Yeah, this anyway. film is really well directed. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's just a testament to Roger Ebert's disdain for the horror genre, to be honest. I, yeah, I agree. Totally. So it is the 4th of July and the Croker Queen competition. God, why do I write these things? And they're really hard to say when you're getting drunk. So uh, <laughs> it is the Croker Queen competition underway. Performing on stage is Miss Helen Shivers, Sarah Michelle Gellar. And she is being watched by her friends Julie, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Julie's boyfriend Ray, Freddie Prince Jr., and Helen's boyfriend Barry. Ryan I do think this is the most charming Ray is in the entire movie. You mean when he's talking about how big her tits are? Yep, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think kind of everything before the accident, he's fine. fine. Oh, because they're carefree. These are this is what teenagehood is supposed to be like. These, Until you murder somebody. These 25-year-olds. <laughs> yes. fucking teenagers. <laughs> well, we're being generous with our age. I wish the guys looked like that at my high school. Me when too. I was a teenager. Jesus. I mean, once again, shall I bring up my body dysmorphia when I look at Freddie Prince Jr. as an everyman? I mean, <laughs> I if I can bring up mine, not. then we'll, we'll be on, this is going to be a three-hour episode. <laughs> Welcome back to Body Dysmorphia, brought to you in part by I Know What You Did Last Summer. <laughs> Ooh, move on to happier things. Okay. So Helen wins. Yay! She is the Croker Queen for the year, and to celebrate, they hit the boardwalk, which is packed with lots of people, including Helen's older sister, Elsa, returning Horakwia's vet, Bridget Wilson. I I love her. I love and her. she's such a good bitch in this movie. I mean, honestly, it's like 
you know, cast her, cast Famke Janssen. I'm sorry, Famke Janssen. There um, we go. <laughs> I will never stop saying it that way. But I actually, they have a really good sisterly resemblance. I think yes. they look really good together. I think they're very well cast. I also think that they have, like, I think Elsa's a bit nastier than I that I am comfortable with as far as, like, the sibling. Yeah. Because, you know, with your siblings, you say, like, really fucked up shit to them sometimes. And you're oh, like... Yeah. D- like don't come into our room i'm gonna well, fucking murder you and also like mom just made dinner well but but it's because though sarah uh, helen's the pretty one elsa has glasses and a ponytail so but she's she ugly does. so here's the funny thing in the original script apparently elsa was ugly and that was part of the reason that she resents helen and then jim gillespie was like no i'm not gonna do that because i don't think that's as interesting so yeah she does have glasses and a i think ponytail. they yeah i think maybe they tried to make up for it with like oh elsa's stuck in the small town running the family shop and helen exactly gets to go that. to new york or whatever and and, and honestly like I- I mean, you know, we're going to harp on it a lot, but, like, everything Helen really, all her relationship with Elsa, her relationship with Julie, like, those are the things that are the most compelling parts of this film. Yeah. Oh, really? You don't care about the fact that Ray inherits his dad's job? (laughs) So Ray became a fisherman. (gasps) No, Ray, not a fisherman. Ugh. (laughs) I mean, sorry to any fisherman out there, but it's more about Ray being... So oh, it's a great, great profession. It just it, it, it that's his only trait in this movie is that he's a fisherman and that he he's also kind of a red herring and he right. loves Julie. And he's an idiot. Like he, yeah. there's so many times when he could have probably helped certain situations and yes. he does not. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. I have thoughts about how he fucks off for the last act of this movie. Well, not the <laughs> yeah. last act, but well, right up till. So like should. the last half, really. He's gone yeah. because because he's a red herring. Exactly. Because he's the least likable of the four. There is that as well. Which is saying something when we still have Ray. Or the, sorry, other, Barry. Yeah, the other fact that we saw today, and uh, Ari, was that uh, Sarah Mich- Helen only speaks to Ray twice in the film. I don't That's blame such her. a weird fact. <laughs> They're in a bunch of scenes, but they only interact verbally twice. But why are people paying attention to that? I'm trying to think if I've done... Yeah, I mean, no, like, but, uh, if I've ever done but that it's, pe- it's people like us, though, who have watched this film a thousand times. And they're like, Ray sucks, Helen's great, I'm gonna clock that shit. And I think also the fact that they ultimately get married and have a bunch of kids. Oh, right. <laughs> that, yes. That's actually probably, that's that also makes true. way yeah. more sense. They, they met on this movie. That works. How did they fall in love if they only speak to each other twice? Because they were they were trying to hide it probably when they were filming because behind the scenes they were being yeah, They out. were totally fucking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Elsa demeans Helen. Well, Julie gently shoots down Max, Johnny Galecki's advances. Also, huge red herring in this movie. Yeah, his character name might as well be Red Herring. Yeah, um, which if you've ever seen a pup named Scooby Doo, there was a bully oh, named Jesus. Red Herring in that show. <laughs> Thank you, Ari, for how many how many Scooby Doo references now are like per episode are required? It's fine. The episode did not get us that many hits. <laughs> uh, it actually did get <laughs> us a did. lot of hits. Yeah. <laughs> it did really well. No, but uh, I, I never really watched Roseanne, but I imagine this was him playing against type, right? Um, no. Not so he's, much. He's just like a regular son on that show. Yeah, I feel like he's just kind of playing himself. Okay. So Big Bang Theory is like, I don't know. I don't know Johnny Galecki's personality, but it it's like somewhere between, you know, Darlene's boyfriend and uh, uh, Max for me, because that's like how I know him. <laughs> but like, he's like. I feel like he acts the same. I don't watch Big Bang Theory. That's a show. It, like I've seen enough of it to know that I don't. I don't want to watch it. Yeah, anymore. it's not a show for you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I. Yeah. He. But I will give him this. He's if this fine. is even a compliment, that like he's he's looks the same now to me. That's yeah, he does. really does. Yeah. He doesn't age. He's like uh, Gwen Stefani. He and Nev Campbell. Honestly, Jennifer Hewitt looks pretty good now. Oh too. yeah. 
Sure and Sarah Michelle Gellar looks good now, too. Yeah. Yep. And Freddie Prince Jr. They all look great. Ryan Phillippe actually looks really amazing, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said it before, I'll say it again. This cast is hot as fuck. It is. They are. <laughs> all right. So the foursome leave the crowd behind to tell urban legends at Dawson's Beach. But I do love the set design of this. Like the half a boat thing. Like it looks mm-hmm. really, really cool. And of course, if you look at the trivia, it's modeled on an actual piece of art, which just gives you that much more class to your slasher film. And this um, this was actually released, I think, maybe the first half of Dawson's Creek's first season. Because Dawson's Creek started, I think, during Buffy's second season. Yes, it's one of the reasons why Kevin Williamson was unable to come back for I Still Know What You Did last summer, because he was mm-hmm. too deep into production on Dawson's Creek. Um, same with Scream 3. Like, the wine yeah. scenes had him overworking on everything, and that's why he was like, fuck y'all, I can't do Scream 3 right now. <laughs> yeah, fuck the wine scenes. <laughs> no, and, uh, you're right, though. And, like, Gillespie, he devised a color scheme with the cinematographer Dennis, uh, Dennis Crossan, um, to to make it like heavy blues throughout and a notable lack of bright colors because he just wanted it to be like to look just very somber and there's very little red in there. I love the poster of this movie. Mm-hmm. And, like it's a, mm-hmm. like we whenever we showed this film to one of our friends who um, who's also a writer. He does like a lot of like reviews and little pieces and whatnot. Or, or has he made a comment about how like all of the um, cover art and poster art for these slashers at this time were all so shitty because they're all just like floating heads yeah um it's like the scream thing and then the mm-hmm. even though i think the first scream poster was the it's just the face very more yeah. yeah but the funny thing is like again this is one of those things like growing up i used to like do this thing too this is we're i'm gonna go on a tangent i used to do this <laughs> thing i really loved all the um poster art for these films i did at this too time. i did too i thought that uh, something about it just like made me I just loved it. And I love, like, the typeface. And I would, um, like, sketch, like, in a notebook the different titles of the films using trying to use, like, the different fonts and whatnot for each movie. Hmm. And then I would, like, imagine, like, other movies. And, yeah, I got, like, this, like, actually really, like, sparked creativity in me and how much, like, I really wanted to write horror stories. Hmm. Because these films, I was like, oh, these are really, like, fun and... You get to have characters that are interesting and like you can have twists and whatnot. And so this this really like and probably this one, because this kind of kickstarted the the rush of these types of films. I think Disturbing Behavior came out right before this, maybe in the summer. Yeah, but that um, one which, was not very successful. It wasn't, but it again, I watched No, you know what? No, Disturbing Behavior came out ninety eight. Yeah, it came out after because of um Katie Holmes was already on Dawson's Creek. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um but in, like all of these films, like the, I remember this one was the first post Scream movie that like really started all the other ones. Well, I think it proved that Scream wasn't a one-off, right? Like yeah. it was the start of something bigger, and this proved that it was sustainable. Not that not that other writers fully got this at the time, but that you didn't necessarily have to make some like really kind of like hyper intellectual well, meta movie for but, it to be successful. But that's the thing, though. People say, "Oh, it's it, it, this is like people say Scream ripoffs. They always reference this one first. It's this Urban Legend and Valentine. Like those are your three big ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not fair to this film. I don't think it is either. And I, I'll give a shout out to uh, Michael Kennedy, one of the co-hosts of. Uh, Attack of the Queer Wolf, he said it's the it's the best of both decades. Like you get your your '80s slasher mixed though with kind of screamy type things, but you don't have that meta ness. Like I think the most meta line in this movie is when they name drop Angela Lansbury and Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple of Williamson quips in here, but I think this mm-hmm. is him trying to play it straight 
and yeah. paying homage to the films that he really was both mirroring but also gently ribbing on in screen. Well, for the better too, I think, because I I do think that like this idea of being very self-referential at the time was it, it like urban legend does it a few times like it, it's mm-hmm. one of those things that becomes cringe very quickly um whenever yeah. you don't know how to do it right and you don't know how to do it in a subtle way or you don't know how to do it in a clever way and i think that um he did a really like i always watch this film and i think like oh good on him for restraining himself with respect to that the referential stuff I, because i do think that kind of characterizes a lot of how people know his writing to be i think had this come out before scream the reception would have been a lot better but the box office would have been worse i agree yeah it might have actually not been a hit if it had to come out beforehand but i do think people wouldn't peg it as a knockoff the other funny thing just because you mentioned it ari is so apparently director jamie blanks was also under consideration to shoot this film he really wanted it and instead they gave him urban legend when he didn't get this and all i can think of is how different this movie would be if we had urban legend style direction less for this see yeah i mean i i I, we discussed this joe i think urban legend is a lot of fun but Again, watching this think it's last great. night w- w- with a more critical eye, I was like, oh, this actually is a really well shot and well directed film. And I don't yeah. feel the same way about Urban Legend. Yeah, this is yeah. like a better like capital F film for me as far yes. as like this era of movies go. But Urban Legend and our friend loved Urban Legend, the one who hated this. He yeah. loved Urban Legend. And actually, I th- it's kind of funny because I think it speaks to taste. Because the thing for me about this that um, it takes a lot of like the 80s slasher tropes, particularly with this idea of because a big part of this um, late 90s, early aughts horror trend is kind of like the mystery and the um, whodunit vibe of it that the mm-hmm. audience is kind of asked to like, oh, like figure this out. Like, look at that. Like, who is it? Now, I will say this too. Whenever Trace shows people scream films like people who have never seen them he pauses it at different points and says who do you think the killer is he does this all the fucking time (laughs) and i'm like just fucking press play just stop asking people because i want to see oh my god why can't you just let people watch the fucking movie i know it's it's but but the thing is that like the funny thing about that is that that's actually the directors might have all been you know might have all been doing that pretty much because that's how these films were at the time. It is very much like whodunity, red herrings, and mm-hmm. little misleads here and there. And the thing about this movie is that it does, like, the explanation... I remember at the time, too, whenever the killers revealed, I was trying to find a way to retroactively make sense of how we could have guessed it beforehand. Um, and there's a part where they're looking at the newspaper, which I'm, you'll get to, but um, but I remember thinking, oh, right, if I had just looked a little bit more on the screen when they were looking at the newspaper, I probably <laughs> would have read the name Ben Willis somewhere. And I, and I would have known like, no, not really. Like you no. wouldn't have known. This, this so, movie's actually not great for its killer reveal. Like, no, I think I, it's more like, and that scene is one of my least favorite. Scenes. I know I, I, I will fight. you. I, I disagree. I will fight you on this, but we have to get there. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. My point, my point of saying that though, is that the part of this, that it pulls from the eighties is having this killer. That's like a very simple motive and it makes sense. Um, and it's not a whodunit and, but it, it kind of also subverts that because a huge issue, and I will argue with a lot of people who might say otherwise with most of the 80s slashers is that the characters are so throwaway. Like they really, and the acting's very cringy and it may be for the time and what you could get for horror, you know, horror films in the 80s as far as talent goes. But like, I, I just appreciate this movie for kind of taking that and like improving upon a formula that, 
for me, like, it's hard to watch some of, like, the Friday movies because, like, it is, like, I don't care about the people. They act like they're not real humans and <laughs> it doesn't feel like there are real relationships. And I just felt very different about this film. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's actually the the benefit of a lot of this early sort of pre-inciting incident stuff. Like, that's the phrase I was looking for. <laughs> I'm trying to move us along here, folks. I know, I know. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. So we're at the beach and they actually dedicate a substantial portion, not just to talking about, you know, the urban legend and the boyfriend's death or mm-hmm. stuff, but they talk about their futures. And then we get briefer moments where each couple splits up and we get a sense of this is how Helen and Barry's relationship is. So they're a little bit more, I, I put in my notes, comically sexual, because of course, she's got this whole plan for what their lives are going to be like. <laughs> get in the car. I'll let you do things to me. Like that's a line that she utters. <laughs> Well, this is after they've already had sex, presumably on the beach where she talked about how she's going to let him impregnate her before she ships him off to rehab, <laughs> which is not a line that's aged well because Ryan Philippe has been to rehab. Impregnate me. Impregnate me, daddy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a precursor to Isn't that so folks. sexy? Like, oh my God. <laughs> but then, of course, we contrast that with Ray and Julie, and they've got like this yeah, more traditionally chaste love story where they actually apparently have sex for the first time here on this beach. On the beach! It's so Ew. gross, right? Uh, yeah. Beach sex is disgusting. I mean, straight people. Just, no. I mean, I'm sure there's some gays out there fucking on the beach. I'm sure, yeah. I mean, that's actually fuck probably anywhere. true. Yeah. okay so let's get to it so they drive home and barry is drunk as fuck he's distracting ray who is driving his car and of course they hit a figure in the road and this is a great scene i love the image of the body going up and over ryan philip hayes body and then he's got the smear of blood across his face Mm -hmm. a lot of fun i i really enjoyed the conversations we have here i mean like i I, yes they're they should have gone to the police but i i love watching them like meltdown and like see mm-hmm. this happen but i will confess that in a post scary movie world whenever jennifer Love hewitt picks up that boot and she screams i always think about shannon elizabeth oh my god we hit a boot <laughs> and i never think about like there's that and like in scream whenever people like are more likely to quote scary movie than scream or scream 2 or i know you did last summer um it's it actually like annoys me these days that people are like, oh, was this in scary movie or was this yeah. I know you last summer or was it in scary like they don't know the difference and scary movie and scary movie two have not aged well for me I think like for a number of reasons but like I love scary movie three it's my favorite of those because um, it's more like it's very like in the slap sticky silly it's like in the vein of like um, is that when Zucker takes over or is that yeah, yeah, yeah it is yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but like, I, like this, like, I don't think that, I think it's so obvious all the jokes that they make about, like, even like having, I, I maybe it's because I also saw Scary Movie like much later, um, after so these I. films came out. And I didn't think it was that funny. I thought like the shock factor was part of it. But like, Trace always quotes that the hit, we hit a boot thing. I love I'm that like, we hit a boot. I'm like, it's not that funny. <laughs> I think it's her, deli- her, her delivery is really good. I mean, here's the trade-off. When we do Scary Movie, we will bring you back and you can be the dissenting opinion. There you go. Oh, God, I would love that. There's a lot of uh, uh, homophobia in that movie. Yeah, so that movie's sure a fucking is. shit show. It's such a mess. <laughs> okay, so they do indeed find a body or a boot nearby, and <laughs> they declare that this person is dead, despite the fact that Ray literally can't bring himself to touch the body in question. But they make a pact. And in Julie's case, it's under duress because, of course, Barry just cannot stop yelling and or physically assaulting her during this entire process. But they decide that they're going to dump the body. There's only two problems. 
One is that Max sees them and he sees the battered car on the road. So he is suspicious of what is going on. And then the other factor is, of course, daddy's going to be mad. Daddy's going to be mad. But why don't you wipe that shit? My shit don't stink grin off your shit face. Shit eating grin off your face. No, no, no. Yeah. No, it's it's my shit don't stink. Oh, is it? Yeah. You can wipe that my shit don't stink look off your uh, face or something. Oh, that makes that makes sense. Yeah. I do love Freddie Prince's delivery of, we'll, we'll do, do, Max. Max. <laughs> Have a good night, he's, Max. He's just trying to get him off the road. He's like, go the get fuck the away. Fuck All out right. We'll do, Max. <laughs> <laughs> that, that actually is Ray's best moment, probably. I mean, Freddie Prince Jr. is not bad in this. It's just that Ray is such... No, he's, he's an underwritten a- character among yes. the others. And it doesn't get better in the sequel. No. Oh my god, he's a fisherman who literally can only <laughs> fisherman. Again, listen to the audio commentary. It's right there. So the other issue is, of course, that this person is not actually dead. So they go to toss the body in the water and this person reveals that they are still very much alive, but they just leave them in the water and decide, you know what, we're never going to talk about it again. So let's just flash forward a year into the future, shall we? And they clearly didn't wait to see if, like, his head popped up out of the water at all. They just, like, hightailed it off that dock. Yeah, these are kids who are not operating to the best of their abilities under extreme stress. I I will say that, and I said this last night, I will say that, like, whenever that happens, when his eyes open underwater, I never read that as, like, oh, he's still alive. I, I, like, always thought about it as, like, and this is me, like, retroactively, like, making sense of things, but... Yes, making excuses, yeah. I always thought of it as like, oh, like that must have just been like a, it was like a, a physical reflex. Mm-hmm. Like he's dead, dead, but his eyes are open. Yeah. Like yeah. it was just meant for scares. It wasn't, it didn't mean he was alive. But I will say that the, the, a good, good, good use of lighting here that we'll see future is like that shot of his body floating with all the seaweed and just like the lights of the flashlights hitting the water. He looks mm-hmm. like a, like a scarecrow. It's so creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in case you were wondering, that is a pool, shockingly enough. Oh, oh. okay. <laughs> yeah. Cause they were like, uh, we had like two, we had, the ability to, to do two scenes on this dock, we had like two takes. And then after that, we were just going to go to the pool and do. Yeah, the I feel like if stuff. they use like a lake or something, that would be really gross water. Too. Yeah, it would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So one year later, we come back and we've got a tired, pasty ass Julie. She is returning home for the summer against her will. Man, she she is depressed, hardcore. She is depressed, yeah. Her poor roommate that entire year of college. <laughs> Let's give credit to the one character of color in this film. Deb. Julie's roommate. Right. We see her shadow at the end of the movie. This is true. Not that you would know, but yes, that is her. <laughs> so uh, Julie returns home, and immediately she receives a note that bears the title of the film. I know what you did last summer. And this is the 28-minute mark, so we've got like almost 30 minutes of like the 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 prologue to this movie. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Which a lot of it is spent on character development, which mm-hmm. I applaut. Yeah. What? What is that? <laughs> Shockingly <laughs> enough. So Julie freaks out about this note, and the next day she tries to track down Helen by visiting uh, Helen's family department store, which is named Shivers. Oh, I, well, I I do love that they also try to ugly up Jennifer Love Hewitt by a giving her overalls and b get, make, I guess telling her to not wash her hair for three days. Mm-hmm. Well, they put, and then they like make her look really pale. They like put a lot of white. And she's very face. pale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it was an issue that if you watched the <laughs> things I learned on an audio commentary, apparently they got direction from the studio that they also still had to make these kids hot, even though they were undergoing <laughs> really extreme things. 
So the kids actually get more tan as the movie progresses so that you find them attractive. It's a weird decision and we will get to a weirder decision when we talk about Jennifer Love Hewitt's costume at the end of the film. Okay. Yeah, so Julie is trying to get Helen's New York number, but of course Helen is actually working the counter 10 feet In women's fragrances. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Elsa, it's good to see you haven't changed in the last year. <laughs> <laughs> Elsa probably loves that shit. Oh, hundred percent. Oh, no, but, but again, they're red herring the fuck out of her because like it's like Helen and Julie are like talking, and you just have the camera looking on Elsa, just like spying on them from the corner. See, this is how I know I'm such a sexist asshole. I never considered that Elsa could be a red herring. But did you consider Missy? Uh, just because she's acting really fishy. Uh, okay, uh, well, then you're not fishy, <laughs> fish, fishy Missy. <laughs> Missy is serving fish like half of this, like her scenes, like pretty much seventy five percent of her scenes. You mean Literally. Once Upon a Time lesbian and Hesh? Literally. Yes. Okay, so basically, Julie recruits Helen, and the pair of them seek out Barry, who I think it's amusing that Barry is apparently super loaded, but it's never commented on. Yeah. No, it is because um, I think the idea is that they're all rich except for Ray because that's one of the reasons why Max is yeah. like, like shits on Ray a lot. He's like, oh, you're trying, you almost got that rich boy act on Ray because he's right. like with rich kids. It's just weird because Barry tried, like, one of the ways that he blackmails Julie is that he's like, well, you're going away to college. How do you think this is going to affect you? And it's like, but you have a ginormous mcmansion over here aren't you but he presumably also, also going to it's on like a sports he's like on a sport a football scholarship right. so I mean, yeah you know, apparently that um, you know i also did one i mean the, the sound cue of the metal disc thingamajig that david egan holds in the beginning that recurs a lot throughout this film oh the spinning medallion yes I never caught that um, whenever Julie's in her house after getting the note, she looks out her window and you can hear that that medallion spin. So he's watching her from the get-go. What does it say? Does it say, like, die? It doesn't say something, like, ominous, does it? The... The I I think it's S plus D, like Susie and David. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. We need a prequel with Susie and David. I'd watch it. I mean, we all would. It's gotta be better (laughs) than that third film. Oh, God, (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. So they seek out Barry. He, as usual, just yells at Julie for a little bit. And then Julie's like, no, it's, it, you know, I I did a bunch of research and I found out his name and it's David Egan. And Barry's like, I don't give a fuck. It's Max. I'm going to go to the fish house. I'm going to threaten him. And the we're going to be done house. with this. <laughs> I mean, that's where it works. He comes out in that tank top, though. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, okay. So basically the costume, the costuming in this movie is basically tits out for the entire cast for everyone though not just the girls yeah it's it's equal opportunity offender it's uh well i mean i would have said something offensive back in the day but these are a tanks as i believe they are technically called and then of course the girls are wearing crop tops and the the boobs are out i mean the poster for this movie is jennifer love hewitt's hewitt's tits like just like out front and center. I feel like they look yeah. bigger on the second movie's poster. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know if she actually had work done, but they are bigger in the second no, movie. No, she just has very large breasts. <laughs> she really does. For such a tiny waist. Yeah. Yeah. It's impressive. She's got a Barbie figure, for sure. Well, the funny thing for me is that on the commentary, they talk about um, the size of Ryan Phillippe versus um, Freddie Prince Jr. and how Ryan Phillippe's not the jock. He's fit, but he's not like, he doesn't have the build. He's yeah. not mm-hmm. six foot two football player and they needed him to you know kind of deliver to kind of make him more intimidating than the ray character yeah. especially later whenever he punches ray and i never like 
I would have never looked at them. T- I mean, Ryan Phillippe is shorter than Freddie Prince Jr., but I would yes. have never looked at that and been like, wow, like this little man, like <laughs> beating up on <laughs> Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> it looks pretty. He sells this, this like, you know, buff jock very well. Yes. So as Julie and uh, Ray reconnect, Max is brutally dispatched. So he is our first main kill of this uh, one year forward timeline. And he gets a hook through the chin by the killer. And it's uh, pretty good. I really like this kill. Of course, it was a reshoot in the original script. Uh, Max did not die. And when they were doing test screenings, they were like, oh, we need to kill someone earlier. And so because Max was at the scene of the crime, they were like, let's just kill him. I think it works because we don't have a ton of characters in this movie to kill. So if you've already introduced this other person, they're a bit of a foil. Why not get rid of them? Yeah, but it doesn't immediately remove him as a red herring. I imagine in the original script, they played him off as more of a red herring. Right. Throughout the film, maybe. Particularly since he is also a fisherman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of a different sort. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh... So Barry goes to work out in an abandoned gym and in a scene that, as Ari alluded to, provided masturbatory fodder for <laughs> many a homosexual male. He... The camera lingers on him quite a bit. Mm-hmm. The camera does linger on the 8-pack, the 12-pack, the the glistening hair. Was this a sexual awakening I for you, I used to watch this all the, the it, scene all the time. It <laughs> was a big moment for me. This was about four years before I came out, uh, but it was it helped me along the way shall we say. (laughs) (laughs) So he returns to his locker. He finds that his jacket is missing, but it has been replaced by a picture of his car with the words, I know. And outside he gets chased down the street. He's thrown through a wall and he's threatened silently by the killer. And I can tell you, this is one of the plot points that people have often told me is an issue for them because they're like, well, why doesn't he just kill Barry now? Well, I was, well, A, because that's, it's not July 4th yet. B, He's also really good at making sure he didn't kill him. Like, because he mm-hmm. could have easily killed him when he ran him, like when he hit him with the car. I forgot that he actually drives him through that wall. I thought he just kind of gave him a gave him a little kiss with the bumper and then let him go. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> it, it actually looks like it would have hurt quite a lot. Uh, shockingly enough, Barry winds up in the hospital. And the next day, the boys still think that it's Max. The girls, however, think that they should investigate David Egan's family. So they hit the internet, they find an address, and they head out to the house where they discover David Egan's sister, Missy, the aforementioned, and Hesh. And she's got her short lesbian haircut. She's wearing a slip. And she's got a really weird accent. She's wearing a a potato sack apron, clearly. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's ready to gut fish at a moment's notice. But this is also one, because you really like this scene, too. I love this scene. I think this scene, like, um, provides a lot of humanity to this whole idea of, like, guilt and grief in, in a way that, like, you would not expect in a 90s slasher movie. Well, I think that and the fact it's... It clarifies that it's not just them who's suffering through this. Like, yeah. when someone dies, you leave behind family members who, in this case, you know, we find out later that she thinks she has the answer, but it's still obviously fucked her up. Like, she's living in this house in the middle of nowhere by herself because her brother is dead. And her mom is dead now, too, so she's just alone. No, her mom's in a in a home. Oh, yes. She has that line where she's like, my mama, like, she couldn't take care of herself yeah, anymore. my daddy died and my mom was in a home yeah. in Aurora. Uh. <laughs> I always thought this movie took place in Louisiana. I didn't like, like just in retrospect, like I, I, you know, it's 
South Carolina, but mm-hmm. it, the vibe feels very bayou. And most of it was filmed on location in North Carolina, except for like the actual like coast and cliffside scenes. Those were filmed in California. Was it North Carolina or South Carolina? North Carolina. So the 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 visit to Missy upsets Julie, and she ultimately wigs out. So they go back to her car, where Missy then bangs on the window to let Helen know that she has left her smokes. And this is arguably the film's best scare. So, okay, no, there's the one. There's the trailer one though, from when 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 Helen turns and the slicker is right there. That's a really good one, I think. But yes, th- this this car jump scare is pretty good as well. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's funny, right? Because this is more or less a variation on a traditional cat jump right where it's like oh i just bang on a window but there's actually no threat at all it's a music cue that works or a sound Mm -hmm. cue rather Mm -hmm. i don't is there even a music cue for that i think it's just her saying hey i don't even think they No, she hit yeah she hits it and says hey and it's just loud right right right. but but they don't accompany it with a piece of score no no, that the score is associated with the slicker scare yes yeah that's not the not the car window scare yeah it just it's impressive, right? Like it kind of clarifies to you that even though Gillespie didn't love this kind of filmmaking or these kinds of films in particular, he still knows how to get the desired result. Right. Yeah, and Hayes was all she said that her her um direction was like scare the hell out of them. And so I think like she just chose how to do that. <laughs> so that's all in Hayes like just deciding to bang the shit out of that window and yell hey. As you do. <laughs> but this this scene in the car with Helen and Julie when they get home. Yeah, so this this is probably, I think, one of the moments that endears Helen to audiences so much. So they drive back, and they're parked in front of Helen's house, and Helen confesses that she misses her friendship with Julie, and, you know, it's been a hard year. And, of course, Julie being the absolute cunt that she is, she's just like, yeah, whatever, get out of the car now. Well, the line is like, because okay, Helen posits, she's like, maybe he wanted to die. Maybe, like, that's why David Egan was on that, on that cliff. And... Julie's just like, well, whatever makes you sleep at night. And then you get that plea from Helen where she's like, what happened to us? And it's so heartbreaking. And especially knowing what eventually happens to Helen. Yeah, it's a fucking olive branch. Yes. <laughs> Julie's like, oh, I'm too wrapped up in my own this emotional This is their guilt. last scene together, too, where it's like, where it's really like them kind of like emotionally connecting mm-hmm. and then she gets rejected and then julie does go back after this after the next scene but like i always remember this as being like kind of it and i actually think this this hits on the whole idea of like post like coming back from high school after your first year of college and realizing mm-hmm. how many of your, your relationships have changed and i think that's something people can relate to even not just like you know you don't have to have a trauma that, that after graduation for that to be the case i think people just grow apart too so I thought, yeah, I thought that this like kind of captures that really well. And I've always really loved this scene. It just, it works well for me and it yeah. doesn't, it comes across very authentically. I think it's also, a, it's a testimony to Sarah Michelle Gellar's acting capacity, right? Like I, I know a lot oh, yeah. of people do like to shit on her outside of Buffy. That's, yeah, because yeah, mm-hmm. well, her film career, I mean, honestly. I, it's a little it's, spotty at times. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it, Cruel Intentions is probably her most, like her best film role depending on who you ask but yeah i I think that her work in this film is underrated yeah i'll agree with that so she ends up getting brushed off and she goes inside we also get this kind of heartbreaking scene where she tries to connect with her father and her father is drunk or comatose in front of this baseball game so that's the thing right so her dad is a drunk who ignores her her sister hates her her friends have abandoned her like helen is alone she is such a tragic character in this film more so than julie oh yeah 
which Julie's makes like her... an entitled bitch. Let's yes. Julie went to fucking right. college and she's fine. Like she's failing, but whatever. She's fine. oh yeah. The, the delivery earlier of whenever she's like, I went to New York, but it didn't really work out. It's uh, also like so heartbreaking. So heartbreaking. Oh, <laughs> so she. Oh my god. When she says that, it's like, oh, I feel it's, ya. It's funny though because I feel like in maybe the hands of a different actress or with a different screenwriter. Helen would have been a pathetic character. Yeah. Like, she's the failure, right? She she thought she was big shit. She went to New York. She bombed. She had to come home and work in her family's goddamn department store. Like, that is sad. And Geller could have played her a bit more ditzy or a bit more bitchy, and it, would have, it wouldn't have worked at all. But she gives mm-hmm. her this sense of... Not not even bitchiness, but like strength amidst all this fuck fuck fucking shit that she's had to go through over the past year. It's yeah. really funny that like in the um, featurette we watched that one of the or the one of the producers I believe yeah um, talks about Helen like someone who could bring this kind of like likability but also bitchiness. This idea of Helen being bitchy. Where's the bitchiness? Where like Julie is more of a bitch than her at multiple so, points. Elsa's. It, a huge bitch. It, it is the director. So Gillespie said, I wanted an actress that had a warmth to her, but could still come off as being a bitch. And Helen, literally nothing about her is written as, as bitchy. Yeah. And it, I so feel like before the accident, she's the bitch. And then after that... Even then, she's not that bitchy. She's just kind of like a like a fun girl. Well, she's she, like one of those fun She cares girls. about her hair. You know, it's all about the do, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. like being vapid does not mean that you're a bitch. Yeah, that exactly. is fair. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of hair, she, unbeknownst to her, the killer has actually hidden, or, well, yeah, he he snuck in behind her and hides in her closet. The next morning she wakes up and she discovers, of course, in this iconic scene that uh, most of her hair has been chopped off and the message soon has been written on her mirror. And of course, people who watch Buffy are all like, oh, that's just her season two hair. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also just imagining like the killer, like slowly opening this closet that I'm sure creaks cutting her hair off and then also like quietly grabbing her lipstick to write the soon on the mirror and like sneaking out of the house mm-hmm. it, it's a really like, leslie vernon is a really good spoof of that where it's like how you like do things like when like, oh, the camera's yeah. not on you <laughs> yeah i always like to imagine him chopping the hair off with the hook and just being like oh this is not working i'm not gonna lie like i again when i first saw this in theaters i was like man he really like went to town on her hair with that hook <laughs> I think what we're saying is that Ben Willis is probably a secret queer because he's like a really good hairstylist, right? Well, that's, yes. <laughs> that's also the only reason we have that hair conversation at the beginning is to show that her hair is important to her. It is. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, well, no. And then they have it, they have it right before, um, whenever she's looking at her crown and Elsa's Yeah, says, it's Elsa you and your hair. Because yeah. so she's brushing it. They really, yeah. they really hone in on that. If it had just been that, actually, I forgot about the part about uh, it's the do at the beginning mm-hmm. because I always remembered it just as it coming up as Elsa saying, "You and your hair are so pathetic." Yeah, mm-hmm. and thinking like, "Oh, that's kind of like shoehorning that in just so it makes sense yeah. as to why her hair." But like, it also makes more sense as to why he did that because who, like, maybe him hearing that is why he did that. Yeah. It's just, it's so funny, though, now that we're having this conversation, you know, about hair, one of my favorite topics in horror (laughs) films. um, If we think about the progression of Kevin Williamson using hair and aesthetics as a moniker of bitchiness, like compare Helen to Delilah in The Faculty. Oh, Oh, and Delilah is so much more of a cunt. Oh, I mean, I I will forever remember that line in The Faculty where she's like, 
these are 70 these are estee lauder lips they take 72 minutes to apply and she like will not kiss dan as a result oh god and the thing is that delilah is very cold and she looks harsh but like it's like i love jordana brewster i think that Mm -hmm. like um she kills that role she kills that (laughs) well but like and whenever we will cover the faculty one day listeners don't worry but like yeah that that character's done a disservice in that movie because she she disappears at the midway point of the movie because she gets possessed. But that movie is filled with narrative issues, shall we say. That movie is filled with wonderfulness, Joe. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. I fucking love it. But like when you look at it under analysis, there's a bunch of things that just kind of immediately fall apart. Ooh, stay tuned, listeners. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There's there's the tea, folks. So obviously, Helen is not pleased with her new with her new do. And uh, she freaks out. So Julie hops in her car, but on the way over, she hears a bunch of strange noises. So she pulls over and in the trunk, she finds a cast of crabs who are crawling over Max's body and a bunch of pictures from when they went to confront him. But of course, when Barry and Helen come over to investigate, the trunk is empty and Julie looks crazy. So she and her boobs spin around and deliver the iconic line. Gents, sing it for me. What are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for? That was really good. There's I a... used to act in uh, middle school, so. <laughs> There's a line in the trailer where Sarah Michelle Gellar goes, the wait is over. And it's not in this movie, and it's not in a deleted scene, and I want to know what context. There's probably a reason why she, she probably said it, like, after Julie said but, that. She was ad-libbing it after Jennifer Lee. But, but in the trailer, though, like, it, it's done so ominously, where she's like, the wait is over, you guys. The but, way she says that, I think, in the trailer, though, is so, like, it, I, I try to think, I remember I used to try to think like how would that even fit in that scene it would not fit it doesn't anywhere fit. unless there's an extended scene somewhere like a red herring almost because why else would you it say might be like, she's smiling right? like with scissors in her pocket like hey the wait is over guys <laughs> <laughs> it was me it me <laughs> you think i couldn't rock this do fuck you look at this hair like, it looks I great and also purpose. you're dead it's actually great y'all oh my god if helen was the bad guy in this movie that would be so i mean it would be it would suck it would be rebecca gayhart in urban legend yes <laughs> oh my god but they, they give her like a big do just like Rebecca Gayhart, like her hair would inflate. Oh three my god, times. she she pulls off the shorter hair that she just cut, <laughs> and it's actually a giant Rebecca Gayhart wig underneath. <laughs> it's a wig reveal. Oh my god, I would die. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Um, but yes, no. These crabs. I'm not gonna. Like, I don't want to harp on it too much, but it makes no fucking sense that these crabs no. would be gone. Like it, it is. There's a lot of like, how did no one see the killer do this in the movie? This is the biggest like. Well, thing. one thing that he oh could god. have done. <laughs> he may have put a net down first, <laughs> and then put the body, and then put the crabs, and then. Just put, he's very strong. We've established. Yeah. Yeah. He just, he just carts this net with the crabs and a body away. Well, him and his son, it's a two person job. I mean, she parts the middle of the street in the middle of a neighborhood, though, and there's no one out there looking uh, at that. It's the middle of a neighborhood in a really small town. Like, sure. You'd be surprised. They're all at the parade. Be. They're all at the parade. Yes. And also, like, again, I I think why I really like this movie, like, I felt like this movie resonated with me. I lived in a very small town when this came out, and we had parades that were like that. We had um, oh, yeah. the yeah, yeah. Cotton Bowl Queen. It was what it was our, our pageant and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, what was your talent, Ari? It was called Rawls, R-A-L-L-S, named after a man named John Rawls. I think that's his name. <laughs> I don't know. I moved I moved from there when I was 13. But, um, but, but when you really participated, small. what was your talent? Oh, my ta- Oh, honey, I was not in the Cotton Bowl Queen pageant. <laughs> it's very disappointing to hear. 
<laughs> but it would have clearly been acting since I was acting in uh, middle school. This monologue would have been the one I would have done this one, yeah, for yeah. Sure. yeah, you would have spun around with your tits out. What are you waiting for? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so at this point, we've moved on from Max because, of course, Max is dead. So Barry blames Ray, who shows up at this point to weekly protest that he also got a letter. That we never see. No, th- this is a really good meta moment, though. The, the whole, like, oh, Helen gets her hair tapped off, Julie gets a body in a trunk, I get run over, you get a letter, that's balanced. I, I wish they wouldn't have put that in the trailer. Yeah, yeah, that's in the trailer and it sucks. But when they mention Billy Blue, the camera cuts to Ray and he looks so suspicious. And yeah, it's like, like oh, it's guilty. so... Well, literally what he says is, how do you know that? <laughs> like... <laughs> It's like, how did you find... He might as well said, how did you find out my secret? <laughs> the wait is over. That That's her line. The wait is over. It's been, Billy Blue is here. <laughs> oh, my God. It was it was actually Ray and Helen all along. Yeah, I was going to say, in the world of Scream, it would have been Helen and Ray. Yeah. Okay, well, Somehow, when they remake this movie, now we know they how were, it's They were go. cheating. Oh, well. Uh, well, well yeah, we can talk about we'll that. We'll touch on minute. that later. <laughs> Okay, so Julie and her boobs head off to Missy's with a yearbook because she wants to investigate this Billy Blue connection. And Barry, it is decided, will watch over Helen because she has to be in the parade as the reigning queen. And Ray will apparently fuck off for the next act. Like, he's literally he's out gone. of the movie. Like, voted out by but the it's, it's It's because they're still keeping him as a red herring, though. And yeah. honestly, had he been the killer, it might have been more interesting. No. I I, I mean, I could see it, but I don't think it would have satisfied. No, no, no. But for his character, it would have been more interesting. Yeah, I don't think for the movie, it would have been good. I also don't think that he could have delivered anything. No, my God. Can you imagine Freddie Prince Jr. trying to emote through like a Scream 2 monologue? (laughs) Oh, God. No. We need to like Timothy Oliphant to pop. And we we haven't talked enough about Muse Watson because he doesn't really do. Well, I mean, he's well, not because he's not in he's not yet. in the movie yet. But you know, he he lumbers around appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got Frankenstein shoes on and he wears a slicker. <laughs> okay, so Julie goes back to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house and she is confronted by Missy with a knife, but it's all okay because we find out that David Egan committed suicide the year before because his girlfriend had died the year before. Well, so the chronologically chronologically this movie takes place over like five years. No, 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 no. It, it's a three, three it, it's a three year thing. Um, but th- this this is I think when people start getting confused, and I get it because you know. Missy says, oh, it was a suicide. Then she gives that note. And then Julie's like, oh, no, this is a death threat. And it's mm-hmm. like, what? Yeah. Because at the time, we're not thinking about the person, the people that we know would have any connection to David Egan to send him a death threat. So it's like, yeah. what? What? this is a bomb where it's like, what What? What did we just find out? I can imagine people in the theater looking at each other like, what What does that mean? Well, yeah, I was confused the first couple of times I watched like about like, oh, who actually sent that letter? Was it actually? Well, in your defense, you were 11. True, but I was very smart, but, Joe. But we, but we also don't don't know about Ben's existence. No, until I know. Later. But what I'm saying is, like, having watched it, like when I watched it again on VHS, and again, like multiple, multiple times, um, I I still was like wondering, like, oh, like, but is that Ben Willis sending Susie? No, I'm uh, sending Missy a letter, or is that Ben Willis? sending david egan yes. i think i think it's been well well it's been well sending david egan yes. a warning because yeah. he he blames him well exactly. yeah i mean uh, yeah yeah so okay listeners the timeline for this shit two, two years ago from this point in the film david egan and Susie willis drove off a cliff by accident and Susie drowned david survived 
A year later, which was the prologue for this film. Prologue? Prologue. Pro- damn it. A year later, which was the prologue for this film, which is when we see David Egan on the cliff, that's when Ben Willis goes to kill him for yes. killing his daughter Susie. Which he does. Which he does. And that's how he dies. But then, you know, Missy thought it was a suicide because of the note, which was actually Ben's letter to David, which was a death threat, which I think it says, I'll never forget last summer. Or I'll, I'll always remember last summer mm-hmm. or something. You're really doing a great job of clarifying this. It's not and, at all complicated. <laughs> and then Ben is walking home in the middle of the road, and that's when our kids hit him. If you watch it like 10 times, it makes total Yeah, it's sense. totally fine. Yeah, just watch it 10 times back to back, and you'll be fine. You have to but, start when you're 11. But here's the thing. I don't think it's convoluted. Nothing it's about... Not it, nothing about when when people call this movie convoluted, I'm like, that's not the case. You just didn't get it. Yeah, it's really not convoluted. It. It's like it's like um, what's her name? It's um, uh, Debbie Salt, Mrs. Loomis. Um, it's her motive. It's just revenge. Yeah, it's all yeah. It's just revenge. Yeah, I mean, it, it's always money, sex, and revenge, folks. <laughs> yeah. So Julie hasn't figured it out, but she does start to get the impression. Oh, I don't think it was David Egan that we maybe hit. So she races back home. Meanwhile, we've got, you know, some drama at the parade, whatever, that's a red herring. Uh, So let's fast forward to the pageant itself. Helen is sitting on stage. She's realizing that her life choices maybe should have gone in a different direction when she sees the rat (laughs) on that chick. This this 50-year-old woman. That woman is not (laughs) in high school, number one. Uh, Trace, can I get a musical rendition of this song that she is singing? It's fame. It's baby, look at me and tell me what you see. Yeah, but you're singing it too well. You need to sing it the way she sings it. I Allow don't know. I mean, baby, do I? It's not the same. But then you, but then you have Helen like just looking at her like Jesus. Helen's, yes. I, I, I love, love that Sarah Michelle Gellar's like acting in this part where she's just kind of like d- totally disgusted by this woman. <laughs> like, she hates her so much. I think she's just like, oh fuck, was that me? I, one year I love ago. It. Yeah, no. And oh then she's God. like, Jesus Christ! Like she's just like, oh Jesus! Like this is fucking terrible. Yeah. <laughs> And also, who let this fifty-year-old woman on stage? This scene, this this moment begins the like I don't know how long, fifteen minutes. M- my favorite fifteen minutes, I think, in any slasher. Mm-hmm. Period. Well, so Bar- Barry's death, it, it's relatively bloodless because we just we just get the shots of the hook coming down in like so Barry's good. face. Mm-hmm. But the reveal, because like you know, we're seeing from Helen's POV, and it's like the lights in her face. And if you've been on stage or in a play, like you know what that feels like. But one of the lights moves and then you just see the shadow of the fisherman behind him. Mm-hmm. It's such a beautifully staged shot and the yeah. reveal is fantastic. Also, just like the focus on the shadows of like the hook coming up and down mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Helen, like like juxtaposed with Helen running through the crowd and people are like trying to hold her back and, and she like, can't do anything about it. Yeah. I, I really love like, actually, this is like one of my favorite like devices to use in a slasher where it's like, Something is happening to someone, and maybe one person recognizes it, but no one else does. Uh, or so like, the audience crazy. recognizes it, and no one else does. Like it's very creepy and effective for me. I tend to actually hate that, but it's usually just because <laughs> I'm I'm not a fan of people not being believed in general. Well, that has nothing to do with with like the device. That has to do with like a personal distaste and frustration <laughs> with people not being believed. <laughs> Don't watch uh, Unsane, Joe. Oh, I haven't seen it. Yeah. Don't oh, it will, you'll oh. fucking kill yourself. No, no. Watch Unsane because it's it's very. Oh, cathartic. I've heard it's really great. Yeah, but obviously it will drive me crazy. Just the whole movie is though yeah. is that it's, it's very frustrating, but it, but it's very the ending is very cathartic. So this is the thing with this scene that I really appreciate is like that that whole device of like 
she's not being believed. There is a very frustrating moment that Mm -hmm. I will mention shortly, but like, I just, it's like the helplessness of knowing after like they had, and they had like a really sweet moment before she um, was up there on stage before the 50 year old woman started singing fame. Um, (laughs) This is not trying to be ages. So if it sounds like that, please cut this out. Um, (laughs) We will not, but um, (laughs) I'm editing it, but no, the way that they look at each other and they're like, he's smiling and she smirks because she recognized like she's, they're like joking about the woman. It's like the old days. It's really cute. And then that happens. You know, there's every suggestion that they might get back together after this, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, because yeah, none of them have talked for this entire year. And yeah. now they get it back, and they they think they have a handle on things, and then everything turns. And to at shit. this point in the film, you kind of care, like you want, like you're like, oh, it might be nice for Helen to find some happiness, and like for Ray and her to get back together, because clearly, like they have like a you know <clears throat> high school sweetheart thing going on. I like that's what I think this movie does well is that Ray's death, despite the fact that Ray is like a misogynist and like a hothead and an asshole. You mean Barry? Like, it's it's effective. I'm sorry, Barry. Yeah, no, Barry's it's fine. Death. I've been doing it the whole time, so it's be- <laughs> Ray's fucking generic death, I boy wish. names too. <laughs> Where's um, that Ray death scene? We're all asking. For? Oh my god! Yeah, let's swap it out. <laughs> uh, yeah. So unfortunately, Barry does perish here, and the body disappears as always. We get an, a nice little moment where we see a blood. Some blood dripping down as Helen is escorted away by this asshole sheriff. Oh, he pissed me off so much. What, so, what's like, the line that you hear? When I, no, when she, when she's like yelling, she's like, they killed Barry. Barry who? Barry who? Like, as if like, and then <laughs> he's like so here. smug. Who's like, Barry? As if he just proved something. Like, Barry who? See? Like, and when we watched this last night, I was like drinking and I told Trace, I was like, that is literally a fucking cop. Like, they just got a real cop just to come play himself. This is so, <laughs> I was so enraged rewatching this. Yeah. Uh, it's been interesting to watch movies nowadays where you realize there really just are cops everywhere. I mean, yeah, also, it makes sense in horror the films, police. but it's... The portrayal is often not great in terms of the current climate where you're just like, oh, wow, these cops are the fucked up thing is that I actually think that this is very accurate to small town police. And it's like and it's and and police in general, like it's just like this, uh, this like power trip type of thing where it's like. No, I'm this, I'm doing my job, well, and I don't really need to listen to you, crazy, he, well, he, hysterical he, woman. He's seeing though to a, a pageant queen, so he already has yes. no respect for her anyway, mm-hmm. and he treats her like she's a bimbo, which yeah. she's clear, which she's not. But that's all he sees, and he treats her like that because she's a hysterical blonde white woman. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Barry is gone, the body is gone, but the sheriff will drive Helen home, and he spends the entire car ride laughing at her story and mocking her, and she's, like, very clearly upset and crying in the back of this police cruiser, and he just doesn't give a shit until they get to this blocked alleyway. I'm clocking this, y'all. So this is the start of one of the best chase scenes of all time. It is about a nine-minute chase scene. Like, I mean, like, granted, I'm starting, like, from, like, the cop car, like, with, like, with, like, with her talking to the cop, because I, I just think this is her entire set piece. Mm-hmm. It's phenomenal. And we'll talk about it more as we get to the actual chase, but holy shit. Like, Are we this... not here already? We're, we're here, yeah. So I've cut out the Julie part so we can just talk about yeah, Helen, no one cares. and then I we'll come back to well, Julie. Julie. Julie learns that Susie had a dad. That's all that matters. Yeah, it's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a fisherman, Ben Willis. The fisherman. Who cares? Who cares? That's what you need to know. <laughs> Let's go back to the important part of the movie. <laughs> yeah. So the alley is blocked. So the sheriff gets out and his shit stick Mayberry ass reject 
is murdered by the fisherman and uh this prompts helen to freak out she kicks out the cruiser's window and makes a run for it so helen is on the run she makes her way through town square to shivers department store where she desperately begins banging on the glass for elsa to let her in so elsa is there doing inventory and Shout out to our opening theme. Yeah, I, it's interesting that every year so far, we have managed to do the movie from which we pick our opening theme. The, the, this, I, I love everything in the department store, but I love this of her at the door banging and waiting. The tension, and you're right, it is like Halloween too. Is it where you're talking about where she's in the elevator trying to get the elevator open? No, I'm talking about Halloween when she's run, where she's going. Oh, oh house. yeah, original yes. Halloween. Um, and, and also, this happens again in H2O, what, yes. next year when that comes out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, with the, a gate and the keys and mm. this happens again and i still know Edith last summer with um brandy falling through the thing <laughs> which which i will say to its credit i still know what you did last summer i don't think i said that that's i still know what you did last summer is what i was referring to but this the basically it tries to mirror helen's chase scene yes. with brandy's chase scene which brandy's chase scene is like literally one of the best parts of that movie it's really well done I'll give with, you that. The, with the greenhouse mm-hmm. where she's like on it and it starts cracking isn't that they do that in lost world too um Mm -hmm. but uh when she falls through and then she runs to try to get in and honestly like it's kind of like what i had i what i wished would have happened to helen where like everything works out and she survives right but helen like i think it makes what happens to her at the end of all this more effective it's one of the reasons it works so well. And Joe, because you told me something I didn't know last night, that this scene wasn't as extended in the script. No. So apparently in the script, it was just like Helen runs to the store. She ends up getting like, you know, murdered kind of deal. Like it was very just bare bones. It was left for Gillespie to fill in himself. So when they found this location, this is an actual department store. Like it's a real department store mm-hmm. in North Carolina. And as soon as he saw this dumb waiter. Gillespie was like, yeah, I can use that. So he ended up building the entire set piece around it. The way that they describe it to you in the featurette is that um, he told Kevin Williamson, like, this dumbwaiter has been around for, like, decades. It's, like, it's original. It's, like, untouched. Like, the setting is perfect. Can we write the scene? And that apparently Kevin Williamson, like, wrote something very quickly, pretty much, because he was told he needed to. Just Which I, I mean, the fact that Gillespie hasn't really done much work after this, like he did the the mid two thousands movie Venom, which was oh, I, hmm. it got trashed when it came out. I remember it's I, a I remember, weird movie. I think it's okay. It's it's. I'm sure it might not have aged well because it's very much about like New Orleans black blue. Yeah, yeah. But I remember thinking it was fine and not as bad as everyone said it was. But yeah, he hasn't done anything, and it's really kind of shocking because you like when you watch a scene like this, and even knowing that he basically crafted this chase scene, which is considered one of the best chasings of all time. It's it's sad. You know, I, w- I would like to see more from this guy. In our household, mm-hmm. this is the best chase scene of all time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it holds a special place in a lot of people's It's hearts, wonderful. It's so good. It yeah. is just so effective. And again, you're right. Like, I think, like, Jim Gillespie. I think that he, you know, Kevin Williamson could have written this beat for beat too, but he really brings it to life with just, like, the lighting in this department store mm-hmm. and... Just like, man, the the ebb and flow of the suspense, it just really works. I think that the number of times that you think something is going to happen and it takes an extra couple of beats, like, I will forever remember. So I saw this movie in theaters and 
you know that the fisherman is hiding under one of the mannequin plastic sheets. Like, you know, it's just a matter of when. And it takes forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, and the music cue in the background is so fucking good. Oh, okay. I have not commented on this, but so John Debney's score for this film is amazing. And it really kicks in a high gear with Helen's chase scene. But from from her chase scene all the way through to the boat climax, like, this score... I mean, I, I... I got this fucking soundtrack and I listened to it all the time in my car and I just like I, I just like pumped to it I'm like yeah run Helen the go! score the score is fantastic <laughs> but there's actually like a um, a synced music cue I don't even I don't know this song yeah I think there's like a head. song like a music but it's, yeah. a, it's a, a very playing. like oh and it's like the singer's like Ehh. yeah it's just like and then it kind of and then it shuts off and that and it's so extra creepy I mm-hmm. do imagine though the fisherman like okay so he kills elsa i love the shot of him carrying her body with the hook it's so good mm-hmm. it's so gross too right where you're just yeah. like oh wow this person does it's not like all care up about in her humans. ribs and her liver is sick um oh and there's the good shot too of whenever elsa goes back to lock the door and you see the oh yeah whenever um they he um he kind of looks at the actual door just shutting before she comes around the corner. So mm-hmm. clearly someone's made their way inside before but she's able to do that. I love the idea of this fisherman killing Elsa, stashing the body, and then going to get a mannequin, move it, but take the tarp and then hide under it before Helen gets down there to get her. Mm-hmm. Like, he's really looking to fuck around with Helen here. <laughs> they do that on, um, I think they do that on Scary Movie. <laughs> like, something like, oh, the killer's gonna go hide here. Like, they show it happening. Oh, he gets under a, a rug, basically. Yeah, like, no, no. yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I just imagine that too, because I remember, again, that's one of those things that I thought like, how did he get under that so fast? Mm-hmm. And then you think of like the mechanics of like this it's man loud. and the slicker it's get loud. under this tarp or whatever this is. Yeah, because like there's no other sounds except for that Muzak track happening at this <laughs> yeah. point. So it's like, oh, I got to be really careful with this plastic. I don't want to make too much. Ah, oh, crinkled. Ah, crap. <laughs> oh, shit. And, and then from here, it's just a roller coaster ride because we oh. get on this. Uh, the, I, the elevator is also really cool too, because like you, you have the overshot, uh, overhead shot of her pulling the rope and then the mm-hmm. hook coming for her He's feet swiping the is, there the is such is really like loud. wonderful choreography like across this whole chase scene there's everything works out mm-hmm. in a really good way yeah apparently sarah michelle geller's hands got really fucked up pulling that rope all night oh, I bet. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> she got a bunch of like rope shards and like kind of rope burn girl it's real well because yeah. imagine how many takes they would have had to do and also, I bet she was tired because she's like pulling that fucking. She's pulling thing. up her weight. That's her workout. No, mm-hmm. but literally, like all of it, the way that it's kind of just timed and and the shots that you see with him like um, swiping the hook at her while she's doing it, it mm-hmm. just works out so well that clearly they. I can't imagine it was just a one and done. So I'm sure oh, no. she got yeah, she was there all over. night long. I okay. So when you first saw this, do you to remember whether you think she should keep going up or she should go back down. Because I remember being like, uh, he's totally going to think you're going up to the second floor, so you should just go back downstairs and then try to get out the back door. In the wake of Scream, with the whole conversation of some big-breasted girl running up the stairs who can't act and blah, 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 when she should be going out the front door, It's I, I remember thinking of how ironic this was, that Kevin Williamson mm. wrote this. But the to the credit of the scene and Gillespie and just like everything about this, I don't know that I was even thinking. I was just kind of along for the ride of like, 
fucking go like wherever yeah. you can go just go you you're really like i mean like if you're into the film like you were on the edge of your seat for this entire time mm-hmm. and she honestly i think she does everything right yeah up until she dies oh yeah i mean like he's just better than her yeah the, so the next part is when she is up there and then she basically has to go out of a window and the yeah. music cue for this too is the really so like, the really bombastic sad music because it, it the, the music like Fuck. well the music cue for this is like oh she's gone like she yeah. is dead and it's honestly like you think she's going to be dead when she's hanging out that window. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because at this point, this this chasing has gone on forever. Like, despite the fact that we got a couple of good chasings in Scream. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, we talked about the Scream 2 chase sequences that which we is, really, which really is like. Wonderful too. But, yeah. like, if you look at 80 slasher films, like, there's a couple of films that have some pretty good chase sequences. But they're not seven to nine minutes long <laughs> no and that that's actually a thing it's weird because i remember like i would say like the friday series is one that i did not watch a lot of growing up i watched maybe like the first and third ones so that is the kind of the the series that i refer to when i think of you know quintessential slashers of what people think of when they think of slashers they think of like jason i will say that the, the most comparable chase scene to this film that people will throw out is um from prom night the bitch girl in that movie has a really oh, long chase yeah. scene not a good movie but that is a good scene well there's also a really good chase scene in argento's uh tenebrae that oh yes. that, yeah again i really enjoy um and when i wa- and i saw that ob- like probably in the last like six years of my life so I had seen this first and I remember thinking like, oh, that's wonderful. Like, I'm, this is a really like, this is the kind of thing I wish would was more common in this subgenre. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it really helps you to appreciate not, I think, just the staging and like the work that has to go into the, the blocking and how they're going to shoot all this kind of stuff, but just what it does for a film, right? Like this, yeah. from this point on, this film is firing on all cylinders. Yeah. yeah. And that's a lot of work to sustain this level of tension. But it's like, it's because Gillespie and Williamson gave us seven to nine minutes of just pure adrenaline, right? Mm-hmm. It's, and it really, it really is the payoff for how much this movie is a slower movie. And I, yeah, and actually, it is. it's very much like Scream in that, like, not a lot of action y things happen in like the first, you know, half of it. It's it's very much like character building. I mean, again, Max dies, but that's, again, that's like a Principal well, Hembry type of thing almost. And like, you know what I thought, though? So, again, the original cut of this movie, you don't have Max's death. You don't have the crab body discovery scene. So they just, like, don't talk about him the rest of the movie unless they had a scene with Galecki later that they cut out. Mm. They might have. I don't yeah, know. which I which I even think, and I and I like the Max Seth. I like that it like it's like a really nice introduction to the killer as far as like his how he looks and his right his yeah. outfit and whatnot. But I almost wonder like what would it be like to watch this without that scene and like would this have more of an impact? This this whole maybe like it's kind of like an earned nine minutes of chase at that point because it's like you've waited for an hour for this. <laughs> yeah, not not that I wouldn't, not that I would. Not that I want him to not die. Like, I, I like that scene. I think it works well. It's, like, good. It keeps the energy up. But I almost wonder how maybe Gillespie would get a little more of his, like, 
artsy cinematic vibe across by cutting that so they said though i mean obviously besides that they wanted to kill earlier they also wanted it to establish an actual sense of danger because up until if you remove that you don't have anyone dying until elsa dies that's a really good point because at this point they've only been taunted by like a note yeah yeah it's notes haircuts and crabs yeah exactly well no again if you take out max's death no crabs uh you could still have a trunk full of crabs <laughs> no, oh my god, that the would... crabs all have notes, individual notes. <laughs> yeah. I know what you pinched last summer. No, no, it's a bunch of dead crabs, and they're they, they're laid out to spell I know <laughs> in her trunk. Except she hit a speed bump, and they're all fucked up, and it's like, wait, and she's like, I, I don't get blow. it, and then she just shuts the trunk. Oh my god, that's a great scary movie gag that did not happen. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so Helen's in this alley. Yeah, no, so Helen she, is she, not she... in the alley yet. Helen has to climb out of the window. Oh. The reason why I want to bring that up is because this actually, when I when I saw the trailer, having read the book, they, they show this part where, mm-hmm. yes. where like the hook swipes at her and she falls out of the window. And all I could gather is, oh, Helen, fall- this character's falling out of the window. It's clearly Sarah Michelle Gellar. In the novel, she that character falls out of a window. She like lets go, and and it's like the end of one of the chapters. And I remember that being like a really striking moment. In You're the like, book. oh, it's a great adaptation. Yeah, and so so in my <laughs> mind, I'm like, oh, that's the part where she's at the hotel and she falls out of the. You know, it's like, right. oh no no no, this is yeah. a very different story when you see it. But I actually think that's a nice little nod to that, and I don't think that that's not on purpose. Yeah, it's intentional. So yeah, she makes it down there, and the killer's gone. This again, it's effective. So many. So first of all, um, a the, the alleyway for this is the same hall, like the same alley used that was the one in the cop scene. Yep. Um, and they would just keep redressing it for every time she turned a corner. Yeah, they redress this entire town, like left, it's right, so and cool. center. It's mm-hmm. like oh, it's so effective. They did a lot of work to make this look like a proper fishing town. <laughs> oh yeah. So the music here, of course, builds, and you're like, oh my god, she has made it, and yeah, she stops <laughs> well no but this is also this whole her falling kind of rolling off of the garbage and then running the shot is just so frantic it's so all mm-hmm. over the place it's so like oh it's kind of like it's like really like just kind of like clinging for your life it's like hurry keep running like it's it really amps up the sus- the suspense so well that i just remember watching some theaters being like yes She's on her way. She's yeah. going to do it. She's yeah, she's barefoot. It. She's not wearing those fucking heels anymore. Yeah. <laughs> the killer's nowhere in sight, and she can hear the fireworks, and she can see the people walking in the parade. The she's made band. it. <laughs> fucking marching band ruined everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, logistically, it doesn't... Like, she stops, turns around, and then all of a sudden, he's right behind her. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. I just think he went out the front door and walked around to the alley. But yeah, th- but but but, makes sense. but this is your 80s slasher moment, your yes. teleporting villain. And that's yeah. why people that are like, oh, that's really dumb. I'm like, if you commend any Friday the 13th movie, you cannot hate this plot. Yeah. And if you've done that, this is my message to you. Fuck off. Like, get some get some perspective and recognize how this is actually paying like really nice homage to these movies that people mm-hmm. love from the 80s yep but i think because it's coming after scream and it, it, it's taking itself seriously this admittedly silly trope of slashers yeah. is throwing people off the thing is that the, the, the i guess this is my argument with the people who don't like this movie is the things that people criticize about it they love about their you know their beloved 80s slashers mm-hmm. and those films they have paper thin characters and it's like, you know, I don't even many of them that like that we've watched kind of recently. It's like 
I don't even root for the... And, and actually, this is more like an 80s slasher because the final girl sucks. Like, there's a lot of 80s <laughs> mm-hmm. slashers where I'm like, I don't care about the final girl. I care about the site. Like on the... um, Oh, what is it? The Friday the 13th, the Carrie one? What is that? One Number called? seven. Oh, New, uh, Blood? New Blood. New Blood. New Blood. I love the bitch character in that movie. She is wonderful and amazing. Well, yeah. I mean, in a way... If Helen was more of a bitch, it would almost fit more of that 80s vibe, right? Because it's always the yeah. bitch character that we want mm-hmm. to see live because she's great. And then she gets murdered, which is Helen's role in this movie. It's just that she's also not a bitch. She's the character we like It's most. also just like, you know, unfortunately, Sarah Michelle Gellar is fucking a good actress well, with some nuance but, to her. And so she kind of gave some depth to this character. But Joe, you and I have talked about several times. like, Oh, like, do we like this character because of the actor? And granted, is... Is our affinity for Sarah Michelle Gellar a part of that? I yes. think so. Yeah. But 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 Helen is the most well-rounded character in this film. Yeah. yeah. And yes, of course, everyone likes Sarah Michelle Gellar, but she's not the reason we like Helen. We like Helen because it's a good character. She's super well-written. Yeah. The thing too, and I will give it, I will give this acknowledgement. Helen dies at this point in the alley. She turns around, Ben Willis is there kills her and a relatively bloodless death like you mm-hmm. see like little the lighting is wonderful it's just very i love effective. the overhead shots behind yeah. The, yeah and behind the, the tires it's like kind of out of sight from anyone who may walk by it's, so it's just it's really well done but for me and trace loves this last scene the the final sequence with julie on the boat because it goes to julie going to the boat and seeing ray he loves this and i have always do you turn the movie off i <laughs> pretty much like i might as well and it's and part of it is because it's like oh man we just spent all this time like rooting for this character that like gets murdered and it's like heartbreaking actually at this point like i remember watching this as a buffy fan and being so sad yeah. and so but even beyond being a buffy fan like i really liked this character and i would and i think had like another actor had it been a different person who was playing it with the same nuance and written the same way, I would still feel the same way because it's a well-written character. Yeah. However, this character dying and then the end focusing only on Julian Ray, my love for Sarah Michelle Gellar, the actress and Buffy, my queen of all queens, <laughs> it really took me like a minute, like yeah. over time to, to be okay with the ending because I was just over it. I was like, no, everyone I like is dead. Like, all the actors I like are dead. And here's the thing, right? Is that this film, because we're now into the climax, right? Like, Mm -hmm. everything has come to a head. We're into this final set piece. The film can't give Helen's death a a moment, right? Like, nobody even knows that she's dead until Julie finds her fucking body in the ice. But if Helen is the character that we like and empathize with the most, we're grieving for the death of this character, but instead, we've just got to immediately jump to Julie acting a fool, jumping onto strange I men's think, boats. I think like... gr- grieving is good. Th- th- that's a good word because when I, slashers are meant to be more fun. You know, you don't you don't have that emotional connection with the characters often. So th- this is one of those deaths where it's like, oh, I feel so sad yes. watching this, and I that's not something that a lot of <laughs> yeah slashers don't don't give that emotional. Life. I feel that, and I feel this way in Scream when Tatum dies. I love Tatum. Yes. And her dying is sad, and mm-hmm. it's and it's the the idea of like certain characters like in Slash like when we did our Friday the Thirteenth marathon that we did a few years ago. 
it's it's one of those times when you sit there and when people die in a crazy way, you're like, fuck yeah, and you're cheering it on. Yeah, as you reach for another beer and eat like a handful of chips. Yeah, it's like it's like the stab audience, you know, like people are exactly. going nuts. You go nuts. Kill, kill, kill. Yeah, and it's so funny, like when a when a film like this can make a death so effective in that way, and it does feel like you're grieving. Like, that's a great sign for me. Like, that's how I know I'm connecting with the movie and with characters. And for me, like, if we're speaking from a queer perspective, it was very hard for me as a preteen to watch my superhero Mm -hmm. icon of feminism and strength, like, die. and Especially after such a chase sequence, right? Where you just repeatedly think she might get away. Oh yeah, it's so much. It's so much hope. There's like they give it and pull it and give it and pull it, and it's like it's very it's it is very much an emotional roller coaster once you're invested with this character and just being someone who really like idolized the character of Buffy and loved Sarah Michelle Gellar for what she brought to that role. Yeah, as a gay man, like watching this was hard for me as a young boy. Like it's just kind of what it was, and so I think really the fir- I remember like the first time watching this. After the scene, it's kind of like I mentally checked out, like I emotionally checked out. Yeah, I still do. I'm honestly with you. Same. Like even this most recent re- rewatch, I was like, "All right, I guess now I get to do this stuff with Julie okay. and Ray on the boat." Let all right. Let's move on to the boat then, because yeah. I, I I agree with y'all both on the emotional attachment here. But I do. So what love, works for you again, on this part? <laughs> well, no, I, I I like the score and I like the choreography of this. But I, I I love the action that happens on the boat. Okay. Do I really care about Julia Ray? Yeah. No. Especially Ray. No. But I think it's a really like well staged set piece. And it so, is well blocked, well choreographed. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. I mean, considering that this is a random fishing boat, the way that they manage to move Julia around and keep her in danger, but also you know, move her into another room repeatedly. It's it's surprisingly effective. Well, and we, we, we can, like, you know, there's not a lot, like, to be said with this climax. I mean, you know, she goes, she realizes Ray is Billy Blue, Red Herring gets exposed, Ben Willis knocks out Ray, yeah. then she goes on Ben's boat yep. instead of just running away. Fucking, because even though she knows that Killer is a fisherman, and here's this random person who's exacting violence in front of my eyes, but yes, I'm absolutely going to get on a stranger's boat. Easy child. Okay, so this pisses me off the most about Ray is because Ray could have totally like mitigated this whole, oh, 100%. This whole issue yes. if he had just said... I'm Billy Blue. Let me explain really quickly before you run off. Or but, earlier. But yeah, when or it happened. Earlier. Because Julie at this point has already knows the name Ben Willis. She looked back at the article. She recognizes this as Susie's father. Like, she was there telling him that. And then she sees Billy Blue and then she freaks out and runs. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't have had to run. Like, they could have been in this together. It could have been easier to address this. But again, there would be no movie. That's fine. Whatever. But I do love though that once she gets on Ben's boat, there are pictures of all of them from that day mm-hmm. hanging on. Oh, all we had a boat. fun talk about this about how oh clearly Will Benson is yeah. like a photography major clearly. or something, and he's, yeah. he's got he some loves extracurriculars that he's doing up there at university. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he loves same day photo development. Even just when in a matter of like what like five hours or something like mm-hmm. oh I took this really nice shot of the Croker Queen can you please develop this so I can pin it to my tack board yeah it's like <laughs> hi Robin Williams at the one hour photo stand yeah. I really need these photos processed immediately <laughs> he's like okay <laughs> um, but yeah and so yeah this is the big reveal and I think also this is where you loosen people too because they're still trying to piece together 
because you get the Billy Blue reveal with Ray, and then you get, you know, but I do love that line from uh, where she's like, you, Ben Willis, the fisherman. And he's like, good. I see you've been doing your homework, too. That's so very 80s for me. I love it. But but he doesn't give a monologue either though, which no, is also kind that. of I love it's that. kind of refreshing. You know, yeah. it's just the the movie trusts you to put this together, and the people that walk in expecting to it to be like spilled out for them, like something in Scream would do, where you get yeah. this big villain monologue, yeah. and it doesn't it withholds that, and that's something that I commend the film for when a lot of people shit on it for that. That's actually a really good point because this movie to me, like someone um, yesterday was talk- saying how like. Oh, if I appreciated camp more, I might like this movie. This mm-hmm. movie is not campy. This movie, like... No, people need to go back and listen to our camp episodes where we actually explain what that means, because this movie is not campy People need all. to understand camp. Like, the thing, too, is, like, the, the seriousness with which this movie is kind of situated in, it actually is very straightforward, and it, mm-hmm. and it works. And it's not like... I could see how something could age and come across as very campy. This has not aged that well. I mean, this has not aged in that way. It's aged like it it reads. Yeah, like the emotional beats work. The serious parts work. Mm -hmm. So nothing about it is campy. And I do appreciate the fact that he doesn't have a monologue because that would have maybe elevated it to some camp level that I was not. I think it would have conflated it too much with Scream 2. Like if Kevin Williamson is deliberately trying to not do that and wants to be more evocative of the 80s films that he, you know, was so influenced by, it makes sense to not have a five minute monologue and a white pantsuit. Well, it's already long for because this is an hour and forty one minutes. Which granted, all the screams are two hours long, but for a slasher film, this is still a pretty long movie. Mm-hmm. I love a long slasher. I get oh, real, I, I get real boned up over a long slasher. Oh my god! There, there's an episode subtitle: boned up over a long <laughs> slasher. Lest you see uh, why Andrew and I got married. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Speaking of boned up, I do want to just take a quick moment in case we bypass it to talk about the fact that Julie must absolutely take off her cute little sweater. <laughs> and there's a, literally a section of the commentary where Gillespie talks about this like they had to have her take off the sweater so that she was running around in a tankini. And there is no reason given for it, except for the fact that they needed her to have her boobs popping around. Well, clearly it was the producers. So, yeah. yeah, Like, it's just so ridiculous of where we were at in terms of movie making. Like, well, if you cast Jennifer Love Huge Tits, you gotta show me them knockers. That's the fucked up thing, too, is that it it kind of, like, is very much um, showing how, how... even in the screen post scream era, like how little progress had been made that those things were still normal. Like those kinds of requests of actresses on these types of movies were, it was that is the expectation. That being said, I do think the reasoning for them to get her to take her shirt off kind of makes sense. How she has well, to you have to make it make sense. Because no, no, it's no, stupid. you don't because some lesser films would not, they would just be like, Oh, it, it gets caught on something and flies off. Trace. That's literally what was in the original script. And they tried to, they tried to film it and it wouldn't work. So then they the, storyboarded what we see in the film, which is she takes it off to open this. But the prob- but the problem is that like, yes, like in a lesser film, meaning in a time too, whenever that was not, you didn't have to even think about how she ends up that way. She just does. This is like a, a different era and it's like maybe more of a transitional era and it's maybe like front um, a little bit like, um, 
what is the word I'm thinking of? Like putting your um, heroines at the front in a more powerful way. But we're not quite ready to go all the way. So they still have to be. Yeah. It's like, no, we can't have them be completely Linda Hamilton. Like we got to have her take off this thing so she can lift up. It's like, of course, they're going to have to write it in in a way that it makes sense. But it's still very much the sentiment of why do you even need to do that? Why did the producers think that this was necessary? Also, we also, what, what, what robs Julie of an important moment of this, of this climax in the film itself is that she doesn't even save the day ray does oh she repeatedly does not save the day no one saves the day really because she <laughs> actively gets ray knocked off the boat because she distracts him. <laughs> she ruins the day almost <laughs> and then she almost gets killed he has to whack ben willis in the face with this winch thing when even though thing. he has very good aim yeah great aim <laughs> he should take up firearms practice uh and then that still doesn't work <laughs> and she almost gets killed again, and then Ray has to save her with the winch, a different winch, again. I am not, like, I'm a cynical person in a lot of ways, and I think watching Jennifer Love Hewitt talk about why she wanted to be Julie and not Helen, mm-hmm. and saying, I wanted to be the one who survived. Okay, for me, that makes sense. I will take her at her word. Sure. And her being the one, and then she's like, yeah, I want, I want to be the one who, like, essentially, like, wants to kick some ass at the end. And I'm like... Well, girl, well, that ain't this role. That. Like, where did you do that? What <laughs> well, movie was that? And well, it was the second one, actually, more so. Well, as a one comment, she at least gets to do that in the second one. That's actually one of the things I appreciate more about the second one. And why don't you splice this this little tidbit into that commentary? Because I do appreciate that they give Julie more meat in the second one, in the sense of like getting to be more of a badass and getting to have more to do with the resolution at the end. I think the second one, in general, has way stronger female characters than it than this one does jennifer esposito's fucking bomb oh yeah julie's bomb brandy's bomb i think they learned their lesson in the second one about giving the female characters a little bit more agency when it comes to the action Mm -hmm. but then they also didn't learn anything from the character development but again to hear us comment more about that you should listen to the audio commentary (laughs) which is out right now actually i'm just gonna make up i'm just gonna um comment a lot on twitter whenever that commentary is released and i'll just have this conversation absolutely <laughs> or or you can pay ten dollars and listen to the commentary that's what i'm saying no i mean i'm aware of that's what i'm saying when it whenever that no comes you out, you specifically i know i can i pay you ten dollars i was gonna say don't you two have like a shared expense account or something <laughs> that's personal anyway so ben willis loses a hand he gets dumped out into the water they never found the body and we fast forward to our coda one year later folks what do we think about this ari you've already talked about how you found this scary in the past do you still find it scary it's not scary it's very stupid the way that she acts and the conversation she has with ray is stupid and the way they speak to each other is so but gross she's so happy. Like, oh my god, Ray. Oh, so I'm wearing gross. a towel and I'm talking to you. And the way I get in the and shower. just like her her affectation, like something I'm like, Julie, what happened? Did you like take some like weird like dialect lessons? Like, who are you? Why are you speaking like this? Oh my god, she none underwent of this... disturbing behavior like rehab therapy. <laughs> none of this is earned, and that's I mean, honestly, it should it sh- there shouldn't have been a coda. It should have mm-hmm. just ended. But apparently it was originally supposed to be an email that she got that said, I still know. And then it was going to cut to black. And then they went and reshot this while she was filming Party of Five, like in the building next door. Yes. So as much as I love the jumping out of the shower scare as a child, and I do, it's, you know, it is, if I show this to my mom, 
actually I did show this to my mom when I was probably like 15. <laughs> but, you know, if I was to show this to someone who didn't love horror and they watched and they had fun with it, they would jump at the end. It's part of, you know, it's like one, that's again a very 80s move, this this ending. Because it's nonsensical, mm-hmm. which of course it is because it's a dream. It's the Friday the 13th ending. It is, mm-hmm. it is. It's like what multiple Friday the 13th endings actually. Which again, it's like if we're thinking of this film as evoking the 80s, maybe this and Julie's tits make sense. But yeah, it just... Mm-hmm. It's so. It's the it's the part with me that like I like. Ugh, can we leave that in the eighties? You know, like could we have left that and can we just reference it a little bit? But that's it's cool. It's fine. Is it (laughs) like watching it now? Obviously, I feel very different. I recognize it's like kind of like it's a cheap scare. It's in general the most like offensive part of this is just how she's her conversation with Ray on the phone. It's very annoying, and I'm like, no, they could have done a coda. Where it's maybe just her and she's happier. Or even like she's getting therapy and Ray is there with yeah. her. Because <laughs> all of these people would need therapy. Which, which to be fair, the retcon and the beginning of the second one saying that this was a dream mm-hmm. makes it make more sense. Yeah. Because after all the trauma that they have been through in two consecutive summers, it does not make sense to me. That she that would just be so happy-go-lucky. The way the the way she's coming across is actually it's very put on, and it feels that way. So mm. I almost wish they would have like revealed that it was a dream um, at the end of that, and maybe like she's waking up and she's screaming, and then it cuts to black. That I would have fucking loved, actually. It's a more traditional ending in its own right, but at least then you wouldn't be like, oh, we're we're not pretending like Julie is fine. Right. Like this is exactly. a bullshit coping mechanism <laughs> that Julie is like. It's very facile. And the um, the teaser for I Still Know What You Did Last Summer suggests that it was a dream, too. Isn't it like her being yes. in a... Um, um, the, the the confession booth. That's the teaser, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then he like... But that's the first scene of the... No, but it's a different... No, There's two different. different teasers. So there was yeah. one that was like a that's revamp in, in of movie. this. So it's her getting attacked in the shower. And then there's mm-hmm. another one that was her in the confessional that's like more akin to what you actually see in the film. Yeah. Yes, I remember that. Because I remember it not being exactly what showed up in the film. Yeah. It's a little bit different, but closer. Yeah. And so I, so knowing that, I feel better about this coda. But... I do not agree that this anymore that this is um a better ending than the ending of Scream. The classy ending of Scream. <laughs> Which is essentially the ending of Scream 2 as well. Fair. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts on the film before we close up? Yeah, I fucking love this movie. I hope that I hope that people will um listen to this and choose to revisit it with kind of a different perspective because I do I do understand why people view this as like uh just kind of like a, a reductionist scream ripoff it's there's not meat it's silly it's corny whatever like i get where that comes from but i think understanding a bit more even for someone who loves this um how kind of like it was intended to homage a lot of 80s slashers and also like combine the scream sensibility i think it works really well in that way and i think if you approach this movie in that way um it's definitely a lot more enjoyable so i hope folks will do that yeah i'll echo that as well i think this is actually a really like this is as we said a mature entry into slasher films and i think it is unfairly maligned because people find it easier to compare it to scream and they feel like it comes up lacking and i think that does the film and gillespie's direction and kevin williamson's script a disservice i agree 
Yeah, yeah I actually, um, Valentine kind of strikes me a little bit in a similar way. Um, it wasn't handled as well, I don't think, the film, but that's something I think that could have very well been in this same type of vein of kind of being a more character-driven slasher that's mm-hmm. taking from elements of older eras and also combining it with like a newer sensibility it just did not it didn't execute as well but i do think this the meat of that story is that's that's the thing too with the the pro scream slashers it's like i mean yeah they were all slashers but honestly all of the, the everything post scream that wasn't scream felt still like very 80s even urban legend to an extent yeah. but especially this in valentine and so when people call them scream knockoffs i'm like I mean, they were slashers with, mm-hmm. like, WB actors and actresses, but, like, I, I, di- I didn't think they were trying to emulate what Scream did. Because- it's so reductionist. Yeah. I think, like, and, that, and I think, actually, people are more likely to say that who don't know horror very well. But I think when you know horror well and you're saying that, I would question how well you know slashers. I think it's actually less of a narrative construct and it's more about a marketing and a distribution or sorry, an exhibition piece. Mm. So I think it's because they they realized, oh, a cast of young, attractive people who are typically pulled from like WB style shows given contemporary language. Not super gory. Which which I will say to that, I will say this. This is the thing that um, a lot of works of art, whether it's film, whether it's music, music tv whatever they're all reflective of the times in very consistent ways usually like it's like it's uh, clusters of very similar things or things that do things similar ways and i think i found this too with music because i'm really into music and like particularly pop the evolution of pop music and things like that whenever you look back on certain eras um i remember being in like young and on the internet and talking about certain eras of film or certain eras of music and people saying, oh, this is a ripoff of this. Look, it has all these pretty people in it. And they're in college and someone's killing them and blah, blah, blah. Or, oh, this album is so, it's like, so re- it's so redundant. It's like this producer and blah, blah, blah. Whenever you get away from that more temporally, I think you can look back on things in a very different way. Because our perception of time gets really skewed over time too. So like, it's hard for me to even remember some of these films that I grew up with, like, what year did that come out again? Oh, right. What was happening? Okay, it was happening around this time. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to look at, it with, look at it with fresh eyes. And I do hope that time does some of these movies a service in that they can be appreciated for what they are. Because I don't think any of, like, this, I know um, Urban Legend, Disturbing Behavior, which is, like, Body Snatchers or H2O or, you know, like, I don't think that... Or that's more like Stepford Wives, but I don't think a lot of those movies get the credit they deserve for what they were doing. Right. Because they all came out so close to each other. And it's easy at the time when you're in the thick of it to be have a really reductionist view of these are like reducing these films to to their similarities. And I think with more distance, like even having just rewatched Valentine, I liked it way more than I did when I saw it before. Mm-hmm. And I do think it has a lot of problems still, but I could I could appreciate it more now outside of the wake of Scream. Yeah. And I think that that's important for people to recognize whenever you're looking back or even remembering films um, without having seen them in years. I do think it's important for, for us to revisit a lot of these films because time really does provide a lot of different perspectives. Which is why we did this one. I Yeah, I th- that... That's actually a perfect note to close out on because I, I can't really put it any better myself. No. That was my rant, my uh, ending rant, sorry, y'all. Well, before we announce what we're covering next week, Ari, would you like to plug anything? Ha! Huh. 
So I'm on a podcast <laughs> called uh, Horror Queers <laughs> today, and it's released today. And I hope you'll um, – no, not really. Um, I am on a hiatus still from my writing career. I'm doing some creative things here and there. But, yeah, I mostly spend my time doing research and doing, like, clinical work and, and practicing, uh, you know, that stuff and being an advocate. So, uh, yeah, if I'm going to plug anything, I'm going to plug voting and being involved in your local political processes and um, causes that you care about and in equity and in Black Lives Matter. And I do think that stuff is all um, very important. It's not, you know, for those of us who are not Black and who are not part of marginalized groups, I do think it's important to recognize how much we owe to these groups, especially in art even, and recognize that and give them their, uh, you know, the due attention and the due support that they need. So that's what I'm doing these days. It's not super fun compared to this stuff, but it's important, but it's yeah. super important. So yeah, I just totally hope that people will recognize that uh, everything going on in the world right now, it's been really difficult for a lot of us, I think. And we can play parts even as, you know, minimally as we think it is, it's still something. And so being involved and being informed and aware is important because art is also very political, extremely political and very reflective of the time. So yeah, even if you think it doesn't apply to me, just um, a lot of our, your favorite films very likely were, you know, existing in very political spheres and made statements. So just keep that in mind and be active and care about this stuff. Yeah, that's all I can really plug. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on and giving me a redo. Um, I did not slur all episodes, so EA me. And if I did, I'm sorry. <laughs> I had a very large daiquiri. Wait, I do want to plug one thing. It's actually really uh, important. Daiquiri Cabana in Conroe, oh, Texas. Yeah. Thank you for supporting me tonight. No, we have out. international listeners. Stop doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cutting that out. Well, I mean, yeah, we have a couple things of ourselves to plug, Joe. Um, so we did do an interview last month with Taylor Dougherty of Daily Dead. Uh, listeners, if you want to go to that and just uh, hear some fun behind-the-scenes tidbits of the show, please just Google uh, Horror Queers Daily Dead, and I uh, will be the first result because I checked that today. Nice. We are also, um, so the AV Club did a Pride series called Why We Love, uh, and we are a part of, it's a four-episode series, it's all about, you know, um, me pop culture and media and uh, just queer audiences and queerness. Uh, we are in episode three, titled Magic and Monsters, so you can go find that, uh, Joe and me, on video, talking Ooh. about all things queer horror. Terrifying. I'm sure you loved it. If you'd like to stay in touch with us, you can like our Horror Queers Facebook page or join our Facebook group. Tweet us uh, at Horror Queers or follow us on Instagram at Horror Queers or email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. If you have two seconds, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or write a review. Uh, head over to Tee Public, that's T-E-E -E Public, to buy Horror Queers merch. And if you want more Horror Queers content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes. Uh, this month, we are back to our regular Patreon format, which Ooh. means no more themes. We are doing new films for our episodes. So this month, we have episodes on Dave Franco's new horror film, The Rental, with Alison Brie, and on Relic, which made waves at Sundance earlier this year. And as you may have heard a couple times this recording, we do have an audio commentary <laughs> on I Still Know What You Did Last Summer that is available right now for the measly price of $10. Yeah, that does get you like 50 other hours of content, just saying. Yes. Yeah, and I, um, I, I didn't throw out my socials, but I am, um, if you would like to connect with me in any way and um, rant about all the things that I've ranted about today, you can find me at uh, the R.E. Drew, that's T-H-E-A-R-I, Drew. And that's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I would love to connect. 
Connect with him, guys. C- c- come be a part of our family. <laughs> You'll get more puppy pics if you don't have enough already. That's oh, true. <laughs> but Joe. Yes. July moves on. So what are we covering next week? All right. So we're going to get a little bit weird, Trace. We're going to jump ahead a few years from I Know What You Did Last Summer to the year of 2003 for Lucky McKee's May. Ooh. I have not seen this since high school. I love May. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. And we'll also have a very, very, very special and lovely guest on that episode as well. Angela Bennett. Just kidding. (laughs) No. Uh, (laughs) That'd be amazing. That would be really awesome. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, that's the, it's not Angela Bettis. <laughs> I'm drunk. Sorry, guys. <laughs> and if you've never seen it, uh, well, seek it out because yeah. it's really, really, really good and has a very uh, rare early dramatic performance from Anna Ferris. Yeah, I'm excited to revisit it. Me too. But that'll have to wait till next week. But until then, on that note, we can cross out I Know What You Did Last Summer. Yes, and cross out horror queers and happy 4th of July, Americans, and happy Canada Day, Canadians. Happy happy 4th of July, Julie. There you go. Oh, God. We almost made it. Did I get it? (laughs) Yeah, you did. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy and disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.